The following podcast contains explicit language and movie spoilers. You've been warned. No, seriously, there, there's spoilers and, and foul language. Yeah. Welcome to $20 Ticket, where we tell you how much we would pay to watch Mission Impossible 3. My name is Kerwin, and joining me today is Jason. What up, Jason? Not much. How about you, Kerwin? I'm good, man. Uh, what are you drinking today? Keeping it simple. Coors Light. All right. Also with us today is Mugga. What's up, Mugs? What's going on? What are you drinking? Uh, I got some wine. Uh, also here with us today is Bling. What up, Bling? What's going on, Kerwin? What are you drinking? I'm not drinking anything right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, and rounding out the panel today is Dominic. What's up, Dominic? What is up, Kerwin? What are you drinking today? Uh, nothing right now. Okay. Well, we'll fix that soon. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, yo, this is our uh, first ever third film in a series. So oh, we wow. got Mission Impossible 3 and we got the same crew back. Uh, this movie was released May 5th, 2006. It stars Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ving Rhames, Billy Crudup, Michelle Monaghan, uh, Jonathan Reese Myers, Carrie Russell, Maggie Q, and Lawrence Fishburne. It's directed by J.J. Abrams and it's written by J.J. Abrams, Alex Kurtzman, and Roberta Orsi. It's produced by Cruise Wagner productions and it's distributed by paramount pictures so before we get into behind the scenes uh mugga why don't you hit us with the financials so this i want to start off had a budget of 150 million which is insane right that's a huge budget um it did okay as far as if you rank it among movies which i'll get into where it does on other things um opening weekend it got around 48 million which did give it its uh number one opening weekend um as far as all the other movies um domestically it brought in a little over 134 million internationally did better uh 264 million so worldwide close to 399 million so almost 400 million this thing brought in but i did look at where this ranks among other mission impossible movies uh, this is the worst box office for any of the impossible movies that you have mm. uh coming in in dead last number six um i think we'll get into why but uh, this is number six number five would be the first mission impossible um four is mission impossible two and then ghost protocol had the second rating uh rogue nation number three and then the last one which i haven't seen yet which is fallout was number one that brought in a lot of money but um yeah. this franchise has done really well bringing in almost 3.5 billion dollars nice. so i thought that was kind of cool i have where it ranks upon franchises of all time if you had to guess i have a list of 54 franchises where do you think this would be at Damn, I have that list too from Do our you? from our Star Wars episodes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, but tell us, tell us. Is, I, it, I, is it top ten? No, twenty. It's not top ten. Number uh, eighteen. I think it has the potential. I mean, you got to think it's going up against Harry Potter. You know, Star Wars. You know, yeah. all the Marvels because they have the Avengers and then the Marvel on top of that. That yeah. are two separate. Yeah. Um, this is actually twenty first. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's close. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at this whole. And this list is long, and I had to like shorten it down. I mean, you got Transformers. Pirates of the Caribbean, Jurassic Park, you yeah. got the James Bonds, okay. Harry Potter. Okay. So, so you okay. see where it kind of, yeah. you know, Superman's, all that stuff. I got okay. a question, though. Yeah. Where's Shrek? Can you give me a second? I will find this, though. I will find it. I, I do have it. It's, right. There's a lot. I'll, I'll let you know exactly when I have it. But, all right. Uh, let's, uh, let's take a break while Mugga looks for that. Oh, shit. <laughs> I regret to say this to you guys, but I did look up. Shrek is actually higher. It's number 16. <laughs> it's number 16. <laughs> Yeah, right underneath the Hunger Games. I yeah. So Shrek is actually beating out Mission Impossible, but I I have a feeling with more films to come for Mission Impossible, this will actually beat it. Um, as far as that opening weekend, uh, it did come in at number one. Um, 
And it's not a lot of... What, what year was this? I know, I know you already said this. 2006. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of good movies that I'm looking at right now. Um, I mean, some of the things... Viva Vendetta was in theaters at the time. United 93. Um, the movie that was number two is called RV. I never saw that. Did you guys see? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Who's that one? Uh, was that there, Robin Williams in that? Yeah, I think was so. It? Yeah, that's it was a comedy. Robin yeah, Williams, I yeah. yeah. It's a I, I, I just, just not a lot of movies like failure to launch all this stuff it, so it, it didn't have a lot of competition what I'm kind of trying to get at um, it did come in at number one but uh, but it did it did well as far as if you look at it just in terms of numbers with its budget and all that but this is the worst box office in all of the Mission Impossible movies which I have some theories I know we're going to bring that to the table I'm going to save that mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah those are the financials alright Jason uh, why don't you tell us what uh, the people thought of this movie so according to Rotten Tomatoes um, 70% of critics liked it uh, they gave it an average rating of 6.6 out of 10 with 222 votes. The audience, uh, 69% of the audience gave it a 3.5 or higher with an average rating of 3.59 with over 508,000 votes. Uh, IMDb gave it a 6.9 out of 10, pretty much right in line with the critic score uh, with over 315,000 votes. One quote I wanted to share with you guys, it was from Ian Nathan from Empire Magazine. He said, quote, an inspired middle hour pumped by some solid action gives you an idea how good the franchise could be. But we now live in a post-born recalibrated Bond universe where Ethan Hunt looks like a bit lost. So I guess when you think about the Bourne trilogy, you think about some of the other, I mean, what other movies that were out like? Like Casino Royale came out. Casino that year. Royale, yeah. Bond, yeah. yeah. And so, then Batman Begins came out the year before. So yeah, they, they think that Ethan Hunt obviously he's getting a little lost in all this stuff. Um, you talked about some of the financial ratings. I was going to talk about some of the Rotten Tomato rankings with Mission Impossible's. So coming at number six, which one do you think it is? We did talk about this for for rankings. I see. I feel like this is one of the. It's two. Two. Yeah, two. Yeah. Yeah. So 57% of critics like number two. At number five, Mission Impossible 1, with the 63% of the critics liking it. Mission Impossible 3 is number four, coming wow. at 70%. Then we go to Rogue Nation at 93% of critics liking it. Number two, Ghost Protocol at 93% as well. And then uh, number one is Fallout. I gotta watch Fallout, I haven't done it Wait, yet. Wait, Fallout has the highest percentage of critics that like it? Correct. Wow, yeah. okay, I would have put um, uh, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation above that, but... Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I, I I thought the same thing, but Rogue Nation and Ghost Protocol, they're separated by a couple tenths of a percentage point. So they're both at 93. Okay. But, yeah. No, yeah. Um, who, who has seen Fallout in this? I have. Oh, have you? Yeah. Jason, I, I have not. I got to watch it fast then. You know? We yeah. watched Rogue Nation. We watched Rogue Nation. In the that's the last one I watched. I've watched it again since then. I yeah. did too. Yeah, but I, that's the last one I watched. Yeah. I think if you have Amazon Prime, it's free to watch. Okay. I think you're yeah. right too. Yeah. I did see that. Yeah. yeah. So I got to watch that one. Might watch it today. I'm, I might watch it today, if not tomorrow. Yeah, it's Henry Cavill's best performance film I think yeah that's all I got for the ratings okay so getting into behind the scenes uh, let's talk about the original directors first Uh, so this movie started out with a completely different cast and director Uh, first off David Fincher who worked on seven fight club social network and gone girl was originally attached to direct this film and Mission Impossible 3 was actually supposed to come out in 2004. In a 2002 Guardian article, uh, Fincher described his version of MI3 as being really cool and really violent. Around this time, they were trying to get Sylvester Stallone to play the villain for that movie. Uh, But eventually, David Fincher would leave to work on something else. Uh, In 2008, Fincher spoke with MTV about his involvement in the film, saying, quote, 
I think the problems with the third movie is the people who are financing them are experts on how they should be made. When you own a franchise like that, you want to get rid of any extraneous opinions. Um, and he also cited Alien 3 as being a similar experience. So I guess in his uh, in his opinion, there were too many cooks in the kitchen. The studio was interfering too much with kind of his vision and his execution of the movie. Talk about David Fincher, right? Yeah, David Fincher. Yeah, I have him actually saying when he saw the script, if the studio would have let him do half what was proposed, this film still would have been great. I have down that he went to go do Lords of Dogtown. Yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, he did Lords of Dogtown. Like and, right uh, afterwards, he left the project to go do Lords of Dogtown. Yeah, right? it was like that and Zodiac were like the next films yeah, he worked on. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He, he never made Lords of He left to go do Lords of Dogtown, and then he went on to make Zodiac. That's uh, what it was, yeah. Oh, okay, got you. Because I think he was set to direct it, and then he just ended up being a producer or some shit yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, after David Fincher left, uh, he was replaced by Joe Carnahan, who worked on Smoke and Aces, The A-Team, and The Grey. He was also a writer on Bad Boys for Life. Um, but Joe Carnahan would eventually leave over creative differences as well. In a Cinefix interview, he says that his version of MI3 was a lot closer to what Ghost Protocol would turn out to be and that he took a lot of his ideas um, that he had for Mission Impossible 3 into the A-Team movie because he wanted to see if he could make a, a quote, a big fucking action franchise. Joe Carnahan says that he spent about 15 months working on Mission Impossible 3 and he didn't want to spend another year working on it and that he quit about a week before he felt he might have been fired. In 2004, he videotaped himself calling Tom Cruise to let him know he was quitting, thinking that his Hollywood career was pretty much over at that point and he had nothing to lose. According to the interview, uh, he basically said to Cruise, quote, it's your name on the movie poster, it's your face on the poster, you have to make this movie as you see fit and that's not going to work for me. Um, he left the project because he felt like he was just a studio puppet at that point. He says that, quote, had I stuck with that project, I might have put a gun in my mouth. So I think, you know, he definitely had the same experience that um, David Fincher had, I guess, with studio interference. And he he kind of goes into, um, during this interview, he talks about how, pretty openly, he talks about how studios just bring in a bunch of young and experienced directors to direct these massive blockbuster movies and they're just not prepared. Like the mental stress, uh, the obligations, the sponsorships, all the hands involved with what it takes to make something that's supposed to be so lucrative. They have to work with bigger stars who have bigger egos that get paid more. The expectations are much higher. And he says it's pretty much a horrible process for a lot of a lot of the younger guys coming into franchise work. But kind of going back to his original version of Mission Impossible 3, um, he had Kenneth Branagh cast as the villain. So we know Kenneth Branagh from uh, Wild Wild West. He was also in Dunkirk. He's going to be in Tenet, uh, which is coming out this summer. Uh, and he also directed Thor and Cinderella, the live action version. Carnahan says that uh, Kenneth Branagh's character uh, would have been the villain and um, he would have played a character that's based on Timothy McVeigh, uh, the guy that committed the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, the movie also would have starred Carrie Ann Moss from The Matrix, Scarlett Johansson from the Avengers movies. Tandy Newton was actually offered an opportunity to come back and play Naya again, but she decided to sit this one out, choosing to focus on her family, uh, which is why I think she also missed out on Charlie's Angels after Mission Impossible 2, I believe. Um, her role was changed to a new character named uh, Leah Quint, which Carrie Ann Moss would have played, but J.J. Abrams pretty much scrapped that entire plot and uh, she was recast or the role was just removed entirely. Uh, when Joe Carnahan speaks about his version of Mission Impossible 3, he says, quote, 
were we going to do something that would have kicked the shit out of the movie they wound up doing? Absolutely. Uh, his version of the movie was going to tackle private military and current affairs in Africa. He also says that they would have had the best two mask reveals in the entire franchise history at the time, saying that the mask reveals dealt with major plot stuff and that, quote, they just weren't these cartoony things. And so he said all this after the fact, uh, after this movie came fair? out. I don't think it's fair. I don't. Yeah. yeah. I think overall, most of the mask reveals have been pretty decent, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Except for Doug Ray Scott crying under his like yeah. little, like little bitch. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Moving on to J.J. Abrams, uh, when Carnahan left, uh, that's where he stepped in to direct, and this is his first ever feature film project. So J.J. Abrams had never directed a feature film for theaters uh, up until this point. Uh, Tom Cruise actually reached out to him after watching, uh, I, I believe, the first two seasons of his series Alias. Right. Yeah. After the director changes and setbacks, uh, this movie got moved to May 6, 2005. After J.J. Abrams joined, um, they had to push the release date again to June 29, 2005, because J.J. was you know, still working on Alias and Lost at the time. Um, but Tom Cruise decided to push the release date to next year, uh, 2006, in order to accommodate J.J., as well as give him time to work on War of the Worlds, which he worked on with, uh, I believe, Steven Spielberg. Wow. Yeah, so that allowed him to do War of the Worlds in the meantime, before Mission Impossible 3 started production. But unfortunately, because of the uh, the year delay, Carrie Ann Moss, Kenneth Branagh, and Scarlett Johansson all had to drop out of the, the project. Because of Avengers for Scarlett, right? Nah, this was, wasn't? Iron Man 1 wasn't even out at this time. Oh, I thought it was. Yeah, okay. this 2000. What was she doing then? Just probably other stuff? At Scarlett? Yeah. At this time? I don't know what she might have been in around this time, no. This was definitely pre-MCU. So getting into the cast, uh, we got Ving Rhames coming back as Luther, uh, the only guy other than Tom Cruise to be in all three movies so far. Uh, we got Carrie Russell playing uh, Lindsay Ferris. Uh, this was supposed to be the Scarlett Johansson role before she dropped out. Other actresses that were uh, considered for the role were uh, Elisha Cuthbert, Jessica Alba, and Lindsay Lohan. So Lindsay Lohan, yeah. 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 Bring Herbie with her. I don't know. Stop it. Yeah. Uh, Simon Pegg, uh, he plays Benji Dunn. Uh, Ricky Gervais uh, was cast in this role, but he had to drop out because of the delays as well. Um, according to IMDb, uh, Simon Pegg made a joke about appearing in the franchise during an interview after the release of Shaun of the Dead. When he was asked about pursuing a Hollywood career, he said, quote, it's not like I'm going to be in Mission Impossible 3. And now he's in the franchise. He's a staple of the franchise. Uh, in a 2018 interview with the Irish Times, Simon Pegg talks about his battles with depression and how he would often turn to alcohol. Uh, he says in the interview that when he watches this movie, he sees where he kind of was in his life, saying, quote, he was fairly lost, unhappy, and an alcoholic. And uh, he hit it by acting. And he pretty much says, like, you know, I'm an actor. I acted all the fucking time, which is literally what he said in the interview. So he was pretty much hiding his alcoholism the entire time they were shooting. He does pretty good because he's definitely a treasure of mine in the movie. Yeah. And, uh, man, for hiding it and being a little boozer doing this, that's, that's pretty good, man. Yeah, I would never know it. Never, yeah. ever. And he said he would actually uh, hide his depression and alcoholism from his best friend, Nick Frost, the guy that he does like the comedic mm. films with. Um, Peg says that uh, he thought that the birth of his daughter would change him and kind of snap him out of his depression, but it didn't. So he had his kid. He thought he was going to turn his life around, but he kept on doing the same thing. 
um, when he was at San Diego Comic Con promoting Paul, uh, you know, the alien movie. Oh, yeah. yeah the yeah, comedy. Yeah. In 2011, I guess he went like hard in the paint the entire convention and he was just like off his ass the entire time he was at Comic Con. And uh, when he landed back at home in the UK, like he couldn't even get back from the airport to his house without stopping at a bar. Like he had to have alcohol before he could even go home to his wife and kid. And that's kind of at the point where his wife pretty much made him check into rehab after wow. after Comic-Con. Out of all the actors in this, him, I would never have thought. What's that one movie, though, where they do that tour of all the beer? Oh, the bar, the, damn. At, at World's End or something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, he's the one that's like the real degenerate of the group. Yeah. And he's the one just drinking his ass off. I know it gets kind of goofy towards the end with the aliens and stuff, but, like, he's just the biggest boozer. Maybe that's well, he's just... like a straight-edge cop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like goes to the town and he gets transferred and then... No, no, you're thinking of Hot Fuzz. There's another one where they do a tour of all these breweries, but like, it's a group of these guys that did it when they were really young and now he's like trying to resurrect oh, this yeah, group. that's right, that's right, yeah. But like, they're all moved on with their lives, but he's the one left behind just still being... Trying to do uh, the bar call, yeah. Yeah, he's still just drinking his mind. I mean, it sounds like that's what he really is. It's crazy. And I think, point. And I think there's something uh, too to be said about like uh, comedians or comedic actors. It's usually like the funny people that are kind of dealing with the most for whatever reason. So, you know, I appreciate like him, you know, going to rehab, definitely his wife helping him out and kind of seeing the issue. So I'm glad he's back on track. Um, Simon Pegg also said that uh, 2006 was kind of his lowest point. So when this movie had come out and um, 2011 is when his life was starting to kind of get back on track. And according to the article, uh, he no longer drinks. So, yeah, I guess he he just stopped drinking entirely. Um, he does talk about Tom Cruise, who he's like really good friends with now. And he says that he doesn't really discuss Scientology with him. That was kind of brought up in the interview. Uh, nor has Tom Cruise ever tried to convert him. But there, but he does say in the interview that there's a small part of him that says, quote, what the fuck is all that about, end quote. Uh, and he also says that Tom Cruise is just a misunderstood person and his whole couch jumping thing came out when YouTube first started. So people kind of just jumped all over it, you know, kind of. That wasn't a pun. <laughs> that was a pun. I did, sure. not re- did not realize I wrote that till right now. Yeah. <laughs> Other cast members, we got Maggie Q, who plays Zen, uh, Maggie Q did not know how to drive a motor vehicle before filming this movie, so she had to learn on the fly. Um, I guess she ended up crashing into a parked car because her heel got stuck on the, the gas pedal. The orange Lamborghini, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh, <laughs> she she went right into it. And it's funny because they were filming the scene, and like right when they're filming the scene, I guess JJ or somebody was just like, "You could drive stick, right?" And she's just like, "Yeah, sure, <laughs> I guess, whatever." And and that's I guess that's how they found out that she couldn't drive. Yeah. yeah. We got Michelle Monaghan, who plays Julia. Uh, Rachel McAdams, Notebook, Doctor Strange. Uh, she actually got offered this part, but she turned it down. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne plays uh, Theater Brassel, Secretary of the IMF. Uh, he says that he joined the movie so that he could play a secret agent man. He was actually a fan of the show when he was a kid. Um, I'd also like to point out that uh, if you ever see this interview that he's in, I believe it's for MTV, I could be wrong, but he's wearing a Thug Life sweater in that interview. So I, pre- really? I appreciate that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, next, we got Aaron Paul, uh, who plays uh, Rick Mead, uh, Julia's brother and Tom Cruise's brother-in-law. Um, you might know him as Jesse Pinkman. There it is. Yeah, from yeah. Breaking Bad. Um, somebody he knew knew somebody on Lost, and that person told him that J.J. loves magic tricks, and Aaron Paul loves performing magic tricks. So in order to, I guess, bond with J.J., Aaron Paul talks to him about magic and JJ convinces him to perform a magic card trick in front of everybody on set of Mission Impossible 3, including Tom Cruise. And the trick goes horribly wrong and he's just embarrassed and it's a completely awkward moment, right? 
So a year later, Aaron Paul is auditioning for JJ's other movie, Cloverfield, right? And before he can perform his lines at the audition, JJ makes him stop and tell everybody this embarrassing story about his magic trick. And he got so distracted by being embarrassed about the trick that he didn't get the part. Like he had to leave the audition. So he lost out on the part on uh, Cloverfield. Wow. Oh, shit. It's pretty fucked up. <coughs> a little bit. JJ's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, lastly in the cast, we got Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays Owen Davian. I couldn't find a light on him. But yeah, he's in a movie and he's great. So now we're going to get into uh, something rather interesting. We got to talk about Tom Cruise and uh, Scientology. So uh, I'd just like to point out that the, uh, the views expressed on this podcast about Scientology or any other religious uh, following are merely our own views and do not uh, reflect the views of uh, $20 Ticket Incorporated. I don't know. <laughs> something, something like that. We got Tom Cruise. He's back as Ethan Hunt, but he took a massive pay cut in order for this movie to be produced. Uh, apparently, the budget was way too high, with some sources reporting it being as high as $185 million. Uh, so, for reference, Mission Impossible 1 cost $80 million to make, and Mission Impossible 2 cost $125 million to make. Um, also, the studio wanted to renegotiate Tom Cruise's deal. So, we know that Tom Cruise doesn't typically take any money up front when he does films. Um, he likes to make his money on the back end, earning a percentage of whatever the gross total is. Uh, Tom Cruise was initially set to make 30% of the film's gross profits. Uh, he earned $70 million alone just from Mission Impossible 2, for, you know, for reference. Uh, but the studio managed to kind of talk him down to just 22.5%. Aside from the financial reasons, uh, there were also reports that the studio felt that Tom Cruise's recent public persona at that time was bad for business. Um, at the time, he was in a relationship with Katie Holmes and was very publicly involved in and advocating for Scientology. Talking about Tom Cruise's involvement in Scientology, um, he's been involved since uh, 1986. Oh, shit. Yeah. In a 2016 interview, he says he wouldn't be where he is without it, and he even credits Scientology with helping him overcome his dyslexia. So he was having difficulties with that, and uh, Scientology helped him out. In 2002, Tom Cruise was lobbying to have Scientology recognized as an official religion in Germany. So Scientology, uh, even now, I think, uh, still isn't recognized as a religion in a lot of countries. Um, so at that time, he was trying to get it to be recognized as an official religion in multiple countries. Uh, the city of Paris, France, actually refused to make Tom Cruise an honorary citizen because they felt he was a member of a, quote, disturbing cult. So they, they wanted nothing to do with him. In 2004, when receiving the Scientology Freedom Medal of Valor for his efforts in championing the religion, uh, Tom Cruise appeared in a nine and a half minute long video personally edited by Scientology leader David Miscavige promoting the religion, saying the following. So I got some quotes from this video. I'm going to read them to you guys. Uh, so first thing he said, uh, quote, being a Scientologist, when you drive past an accident, it's not like anyone else. As you drive past, you know you have to do something about it because you know you're the only one that can really help. As a Scientologist, seeing a car accident. Right. Uh, the, okay. next thing he, yeah, the next thing he says are, uh, quote, we are the authorities on getting people off drugs. We are the authorities on the mind. We are the authorities on improving conditions. We can rehabilitate criminals. We can bring peace and unite cultures. Uh, another one, it's rough and tumble and it's wild and wooly, and it's a blast. It's a blast. It really is fun, because damn it, there's nothing better than going out there and fighting a fight, and all of a sudden, he makes an explosion noise like, Bleh. things are better. Another thing he says is, uh, quote, 
I won't hesitate to put ethics in on someone else, you know, because I put it ruthlessly on myself. You're either on board or you're not on board. And as far as ethics go, I'm gonna get into that into the next part of this research. I guess that's a huge thing in Scientology. So the video goes on to claim that Tom Cruise has gone on to bring uh, L. Ron Hubbard's technology to over 1 billion people on planet Earth uh, before he received his uh, award. So I did find something, you know, I hate to go off on a tangent, but I did find something pretty interesting uh, regarding Tom Cruise and Scientology and uh, the religion's involvement in his life. It is a, a 2012 Vanity Fair article uh, written by Maureen Orth. Um, so if you're interested, I would definitely go check that out on Vanity Fair's website. Let's just get right into it. According to the article, the Scientologist church, specifically its leader, David Miscavige, allegedly worked to break apart Tom Cruise's marriage to Nicole Kidman as they saw her as slowly pulling Tom Cruise away from the church and they labeled her as a suppressive person. So a suppressive person is like a bad guy in Scientology. Uh, they also labeled her as such because her dad is a psychiatrist and Scientology completely rejects the psychiatrist and any sort of uh, psychotropic drugs. Uh, they were also supposedly involved, the church, uh, in splitting him up from his first wife, Mimi Rogers, who wasn't comfortable with their influence on him. And uh, they were also allegedly involved in splitting up Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruz, who refused to give up being a Buddhist for the Scientology religion. Uh, the 2012 article also goes on to describe an entire Scientologist plot to find Tom Cruise the perfect girlfriend, uh, someone who would not just be a great love interest, but also who was completely dedicated to the Church of Scientology. Uh, they did all this because Tom Cruise was donating millions of dollars to the organization, and he was too valuable to slip away. You know, like they needed that money, I guess. Former Scientologist uh, Marty Rathburn says that for a three-year period, he would secretly videotape Tom Cruise's auditing sessions. So those are like their confessionals, kind of. So he would uh, videotape those and send them to David Miscavige, the chairman of the board of Scientology, the religion's leader, to make sure that Tom Cruise was fully committed to the religion. Uh, Miscavige was known, according to sources, to read the high-profile church members' confessionals, like he was reading a tabloid magazine. So if you're famous, if you got a lot of pull, if you're a celebrity and you're a Scientologist, chances are he's watching your confessionals and I don't know if he's doing it for entertainment purposes or what, but he's watching them. So in 2004, after tons of auditions looking for Tom Cruise's next girlfriend, uh, the church settled on uh, Nazanin Boniadi. Uh, uh, she was 25 at the time to be Tom Cruise's new girlfriend. According to the article, she was told that she had been uh, specially selected for a secret mission that would help make the world a better place through Scientology. They audited her every day, making her tell all her secrets, even making her tell details about her sex life. They made her remove her braces prematurely, and they made her dye her hair one color in order to kind of emphasize her ethnicity. So she's Iranian, so they wanted to, to play that up a little more. Uh, Boniadi also had a boyfriend at the time who was also a Scientologist and was looking forward to getting engaged to this guy. But in order to split them up, the church showed her his confidential auditing files. And based on whatever she saw or whatever they chose to show her, she decided to break up with the guy. This is weird. Like, I, like I'm like listening to this and I'm like, wow. Yeah. All right, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to get some deep shit. Yeah. Um, next, they made her type a 20-page essay on what she wanted in her life, including her perfect partner, her family, and life goals, among other things. She was then given a confidentiality agreement and told that if she messed up on this mission in any way, she'd be labeled an SP, or a suppressive person, uh, and essentially be ostracized from the church. They flew her out to New York to go on a date with Tom Cruise, and soon she became his girlfriend. 
the sources in this article, the Vanity Fair article, say that for the first three weeks they were together, uh, Boniati wasn't allowed any sort of freedom and she wasn't allowed to communicate with anybody. Uh, she was only ever allowed to tell her parents that she was in New York on a special project for the Scientologist Church and she wasn't allowed to say anything about Tom Cruise. Uh, she and Tom Cruise were hardly ever alone. They were always kind of surrounded by the Scientologist entourage. Um, the sources go on to say that if Tom Cruise found any sort of fault in anything she said or did, he'd report it to the church staff immediately and she'd be audited. So this is the ethics things that he was talking about. So um, call ethics on somebody. I think it sends them to get audited by the church, I guess. Mm. Um, I could be wrong. If anybody knows, you know, feel free to let us know. We should have like Leah Remini like phone in or something so she could have like... Any Scientologists listening to our podcast, please. uh. (laughs) Don't sue us. (laughs) So one time, Cruz actually had her audited for saying, uh, quote, very well done when he won his Scientology award. And uh, he didn't find it affectionate enough, so he reported her. Yeah, he didn't feel like it was that, like she wasn't loving enough in her response to him getting that award. And... uh, at one point, I'm, so, I'm sorry. No, you're, you're good, man. Are you serious? I'm, hey, this is what the article says, but I, this, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Um, at one point, the article says that he even suggested that uh, she file her incisors down because they were too, I don't know, incisory, I guess. Like, file her teeth down because he wasn't happy with that either. Wow. Yeah. God, I wish we had Lindy on this episode. <laughs> Lindy actually did that to me already. Oh, really? No, the two front teeth. <laughs> She said they were too square, so I had to get them like, yeah, my girlfriend is, is a dental hygienist and they rounded my teeth off, but yeah, so I can kind of, I was kind of pissed at the time, like don't fucking take my teeth, you know, but. Okay, okay, I, I guess that's the least crazy thing then yeah, on this whole yeah, list. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't know that was like a normal thing, okay. Well, what what are the, the teeth that you're talking, what are, which ones are those ones? These are canines, right? Yeah. yeah. And then these are incisors? No one can see what Corinne's pointing out, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm pointing, at, pointing out my teeth. Canines yeah. are the pointy ones, ladies and gentlemen. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, so kind of getting back into the article, um, when Boniati was finally allowed to tell her mom that she was with Tom Cruise, her mom even had to sign a confidentiality agreement and was never allowed to meet Tom Cruise herself. Uh, the entire relationship took a turn in uh, Telluride, Colorado, when uh, Scientology leader David Miscavige and his wife came to visit the couple. Uh, Boniati was feeling sick and fell off of her snowmobile that day, and she like badly bruised herself. Um, even though she was in serious pain, uh, she got no treatment because, according to the article, Scientologists don't believe in medicating in such circumstances. So they were not allowed to take her to the hospital, ER, whatever, for whatever reason. Even after the fall, she was still required to meet with uh, Miscavige and his wife. Uh, David Miscavige, I guess, is known for speaking very quickly. And uh, Boniati, who's not a native English speaker, you know, politely asked him, you know, excuse me, you know, can you slow down just so she could keep up with the conversation, you know? And um, I guess he took offense to that. And after uh, David Miscavige and his wife left, Tom Cruise was pissed at her for offending and disrespecting the Scientology leader. Uh, she was eventually moved out of Cruz's house by the church and into the Scientology Celebrity Center in L.A. after spending weeks at confessionals. So after that incident with the Miscaviges, I, I guess he had it with her or something like that. Even though she was moved out of Tom Cruise's house, he would never break up with her in person. So I guess she was still under the impression that they were together or something like that, but he just did not speak to her. Um, eventually, after L.A., she got moved to a Florida facility called uh, the Flag Building so she could seek counseling and, quote, atone for her errors. 
a source in the article says that at one point she actually bumped into Tom Cruise while he was bringing his kids in for auditing at the Florida Center and the kids who had no idea what was going on they even asked her like when are you coming back home like we miss you wow. yeah uh, eventually the effects of this relationship became too much for Boniati to bear you know just like let's be real this is psychological trauma that yeah. you're dealing with and so she confessed to a friend about why she was so miserable at the time and her friend snitched on her and wrote a 10 page uh, quote knowledge report about her to the Scientology church and Boniati was punished immediately after uh, she was forced to scrub toilets with a toothbrush clean bathroom towels with acid dig ditches in the middle of the night they lectured her on her behavior and she was forced to confess what a horrible human being she was. Uh, afterwards, they made her pretty much stand on the corner and just like slaying Scientology books on the street until she was finally allowed to return to LA. But she and Tom Cruise never got back together and he never really officially broke it off with her like face to face. In addition to all this, the church never stopped auditing new girls while Tom Cruise and Boniati were dating. So the entire time they're dating, seeing each other, they just kept auditioning the next girl. Did you go over what auditing is, Kerwin? Not entirely. Do you have that? I have a little bit. So okay. according to page six, and the weird thing is, I've done a little form of this one time at, uh, I was at the LA County Fair and they did something like this. They didn't directly call it Scientology, they called it Dianetics, which is also the same thing as Scientology. But <laughs> what auditing is, according to page six, it's it's a form of therapy where a low-level person involved in Scientology, they call them a, a pre-clear they have you hold on to electrode that's like two little like tubes almost like metal tubes and it's connected to it looks like a dial of some sort and they ask you questions based on how you react to certain things and you know how you react when you're happy how do you react when you're sad how do you react when you're you're frustrated and based on your answers and these electrodes going through your body the the dial moves a certain way or not and they see how harmful experiences, how you react to these experiences, and if you are a good fit for Scientology. I think what it really does is see if you're, you're able to be influenced and see if like you're, not to say damaged, but to see if you're susceptible to, to their teaching. So they have you hooked, like you sit there and they just ask these questions, and depending on your answers, it's supposed to move. But that's what they're doing when they're doing these audits. Now they talk about having like auditing internships and they're they're doing a lot more. I would assume it's way more intense than what I'm talking about, but this is like essentially an auditing session where they sit down and they ask you how you react and they base your susceptibility to their teachings, I'm guessing is what they're doing, and to see how you react. But that's kind of what an auditing session was. Is there any like sample questions? Like I'm sure we can look them up, but I remember when I sat down and did this, like I was with some friends and they were fucking freaked out because they were watching the Leah Remini special at the time. So she was really vocal about all that kind of stuff. And like, they were all like, oh my God, there's the Dianetic stuff. They like knew a couple terms, like they're all freaking out about it. And I was like, well, I'll go sit down with them. I don't give a fuck. Like they're not going to do anything to me. So I went down and sat there and they're like, oh, so how are you doing, sir? And I'm like, well, I'm fine. I'm just, you know, kind of curious about what you guys are doing here. And they're like, well, would you like to sit down and and um, we can see, you know, how you're feeling and like maybe if Dynex is a good thing for you. And I was like, yeah, sure. What, you know, what the hell? I'm at the fair. And so I sat down and they have like this, it's probably about eight inches in diameter. And it's like just this like gauge and it has like two like wires hanging off of it. And you hold these like metal batons essentially. And I just sat there and they're like, so um, 
how do you feel and how do you react, you know, when you get upset? And I was like, well, you know, I kind of sit back and think about the situation and evaluate, like, you know, if I should be upset with this, why am I upset with this? And then I try to, uh, you know, react accordingly, but I try not to overreact. And they're like, oh, and then you see the Dow going way down. And it's like, <laughs> oh, is that, I'm like, oh, is that not the right answer? Should I say I get really upset? And I lash out at people. I'm like, no, 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 you can even say the truth. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, oh, we gotta, we gotta recharge this thing. And I was like, okay, I have no idea what you're doing. So they, like, they took it away and gave me another machine, like, oh, you know, how do you do when you get really frustrated? Well, you know, I kind of sit there and I evaluate the situation, like, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm a little hot-tempered, so I'm like, okay, I, I take a second, I think about it, and then, you know, I try to react accordingly. And, and the dial goes way down, like, oh, this one's not working well. And I'm like, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go now, and they're like, okay, well, you know, go in peace, kind of a thing. And I was like, okay, I did not give them the answers they're wanting because I feel like they're they're looking for like, oh, you know, I get angry, I just I, I lose control, you know, I black out, and I just like hit something, and like they want some like violent or they want some really severe you reaction. Need, you need them. I need almost a crutch. Like I'm yeah. looking for something, and I'm lost, and I'm like, no, I just think about it rationally, and yeah. I come to a conclusion, <clears throat> and I act accordingly. And they did not like those answers because so I feel looking like for like damage goods and you're like okay we can work with this and fix you know it. what and i'm not i don't know much about scientology but that's yeah. what i felt like they were looking for is someone that you know is a little misguided and like a little lost and like needs help needs a crutch needs like some someone like you know some people use the church in that way too and say like, hey like they use the church and they, they go there and you know that's how they're getting through life and they hold on to it near and dear and again i'm not talking anything bad about it I just like i know some people they do that. They gravitate to it so hard. And I feel like they're looking for people that need that, but they, they can't find it. They're looking for like vulnerable people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it was a really weird experience. And that's the only reason like I'm kind of interested in what you're saying, Karun, because like I know just just a, like a little bit about this. It makes it interesting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we talked about Tom Cruise saying that like this religion helped him, you know, with his dyslexia. Like, you know, any insecurities he might have had, they might have taken, taken advantage of that. And yeah. that's probably what got him into the religion I guess maybe what, like his height and his teeth and <laughs> not like, his hair oh, though yeah, we need this guy not his hair though <laughs> yeah but I feel like you're right they, they just ask questions like that they just probe you to see like okay where's where's the gap where where where's the soft spot where's the vulnerability to where we can like oh okay well this book then and I could see just a stack of books are just waiting they're itching it like push on you and I'm like not giving the answers they wanted but um, but they're just, they're looking for that, that vulnerability, like you're saying, Kerwin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jason broke the dial. <laughs> <laughs> they're just like, God damn it. You're they're like rational. shaking it. They're like, what the fuck is wrong with this thing? <laughs> and they got a second one. It's just, this thing just goes down. And I'm just like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, Next. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to waste your time anymore. I'm just too leave. reasonable guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but getting back to, uh, uh, Boniati, uh, Tom Cruise's ex-girlfriend, uh, she would actually leave the church for good after her experience. How's she doing now? Do you have that? I think she's the head of some international council. I forget okay, what it is. Sounds but, like she went to hell and back, man. Yeah. And I believe she is Muslim now. I believe hmm. so. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, she's no longer a member of uh, the Scientologist movement or church. Um, so and she's still dating Tom Cruise because he hasn't broken it off, right? <laughs> That's what I got out of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, probably, it's like in uh, Parks and Rec when Anne doesn't know that Chris broke up with her. <laughs> <laughs> she kisses him. He's like, yeah, I thought that was really weird because I had broken up with you a week before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's it for the article. 
moving on, there also was a 2005 interview where Tom Cruise, you know, jumped on Oprah's couch, declaring his love for Katie Holmes uh, weeks after they began dating. Uh, during the interview, Cruise actually went into the dressing room and brought her out on stage mid-interview. So like mid-interview talking to Oprah, he runs backstage and he pretty much drags her out for the world to see. Uh, the couple would eventually get engaged in June and they'd end up giving birth to a girl the following April. Katie Holmes would eventually file for divorce, uh, one of the reasons being that she was uncomfortable with Scientology's influence on their relationship, uh, specifically their daughter, Suri, and she was afraid that uh, they might try to take her daughter away from her. Uh, fun fact, uh, they parodied this interview in Scary Movie 4. Yeah, I yeah. saw that, yeah. So we got that. Uh, leading up to Mission Impossible 3's release, Tom Cruise was also very vocal regarding his criticism of antidepressants and any other sort of uh, mental health drugs. In 2005, he criticized actress Brooke Shields for using prescribed antidepressants to recover from postpartum depression, calling her irresponsible. Uh, Brooke Shields responded by saying that, quote, Tom should stick to saving the world from aliens and let women who are experiencing postpartum depression decide what kind of treatment options are best for them, end quote. Uh, in 2005, Tom Cruise did an interview on NBC's Today Show, you know, while he was on uh, on the press tour promoting War of the Worlds. Uh, in that interview, he says that he doesn't agree with and never agreed with psychiatry or psychiatric prescription drugs, calling it a uh, pseudoscience. So basically phony. It's not real. Uh, he goes on to say that there is, quote, no such thing as a chemical imbalance in a person and that um, uh, Matt Lauer, who was the host at the time, and Brooke Shields should go learn the history of uh, psychiatry, you know, before they use any of that stuff. Uh, afterwards, Brooke Shields would go on to respond with a July 2005 opinion piece in the New York Times detailing her personal experience as a new mother dealing with postpartum depression. Tom Cruise would actually apologize to Shields personally, visiting her at her home. So they kind of, they kind of, you know, hash it out. According to a 2016 Reuters article, uh, former Viacom chairman uh, Sumner Redstone even temporarily banned Tom Cruise from the Paramount lot because he felt like Tom Cruise's personal life was hurt in the box office for Mission Impossible 3. Uh, in a 2006 Washington Street Journal article, Redstone says that Cruise was basically committing career suicide and losing them revenue and that his recent conduct um, has not been acceptable to Paramount. So, you know, all his, uh, you know, going around talking about Scientology and uh, how he feels like psychiatry is fake. And also, according to the article, uh, Tom Cruise was also losing female fans due to his appearances and comments. Uh, Sumner Redstone says that Tom Cruise's behavior probably cost them up to $150 million in ticket sales. Uh, he'd also go on to terminate the exclusive film deal with Paramount that Tom Cruise had uh, via his uh, Cruise Wagner Productions studio. Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner tell a different story, though, uh, about them planning to become a uh, independent production company for a long time uh, with the ability to self-finance. So, um, you know, Sumner Redstone says, yo, we're cutting you off because you're hurting business. But Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner, you know, went on to say like, hey, you know, this was our plan all along. You know, we weren't fired. We were planning on becoming independent from the get-go. That's what they say. Yeah, Can I, so yeah. going back to, you said that they lost probably 150 million. That's what I've got. It, the sequel to Mission Impossible 2, this did 150 million less than that. And it was projected to do more. So bringing back, I know you talked about the whole incident on the couch. There is a South Park. I don't know if you're going to get to that eventually, but do you think that this actually affected the ticket sales? Because I look at this movie, it says mostly positive reviews for the movie. Jason actually said this, but do you think because of all these things it affected ticket sales? 
I believe it. I mean, I almost tremendously, because I feel like this is a great Mission Impossible, and it's the worst one financially. I, I'm still a little unfamiliar with the South Park thing we're going to get into. Um, we've all kind of known this Scientology thing for a while, I feel like. Um, the couch jumping thing, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Did it really, I'm just asking like personally, um, did it really like influence your decision to go see this movie or not? No. No. Not me. Okay, no. I wasn't even aware of it really. Yeah. I could care less, yeah. yeah. 2006, I, I was still in high school or graduating yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I knew about it in really high school. <laughs> yeah, I knew about it in high school, but it, it never affected me seeing his movie. I didn't even see this in theaters. We'll talk about all that in experience, but I do know people that do not like Tom Cruise specifically because of a lot of the things he said between 2002 to 2006. Like there are people that do not like him because of what he did during that time and what he said during that time. Yeah, I mean, it didn't affect me personally, and I'm, I'm hearing you guys with the financials and stuff. I would imagine it did affect some people, but I right. guess I just wasn't. I was just curious if it really did. Like you guys were really that keen and like into it, like knowing what he did, and like it really like took a personal effect on you. I mean, it didn't for me. Um, even now hearing this, it, I mean. Teach their own. He's a great actor, and I kind of just take it at that. Like, I'm not saying I'm interested in, in Scientology because he's such a great actor. I'm just more like, hey, like, he does this well. I'm, I'm going to just compartmentalize this and say, hey, he's a great actor, and now I'm done. Like, I don't need anything else about Tom Cruise yeah. to be in my life. But I just I just didn't know if it affected you guys. Yeah, no, <laughs> me, me not at all. I think I'm in the same boat as you. I can separate the art from the artist. I mean, look, let's be real. I'm going to just say it. Like, some of the things he says are problematic, regarding like uh, psychiatry and all that other stuff. There's some problematic shit there. Kind of like what Kanye's doing. Yeah, he's, he's, you know I mean? he's white Kanye. Yeah. Like, I mean, come on. But I think he hasn't gone on to, at least in my mind, harm anybody. Yeah. But, you know, this Vanity Fair article definitely says otherwise to me. But um, I'm just like you, Jason. I can kind of like separate the art from the artist a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. go, you know, deep dive into anyone's Twitter. I mean, you're going to yeah. find something. Hey, like, I don't necessarily agree with this or I really don't agree with this. So it's like, I was just curious. Like, again, we're talking kind of pre-Twitter and That's all this thing. kind if of you stuff. Dig, if you're going to look for something, you're going to find something. You yeah. Just like, if you're in that mindset, like, I'm trying to find some trash on this guy. Like, you're going to find something like on anybody. Like, you're just set out to be negative towards somebody. And it's just... Yeah, I no just matter knew, what. Yeah, I just knew it didn't affect me. I just yeah. didn't know, like, hey, like, you know, I didn't like what you said. I didn't know if you guys had like a personal thing where, like, hey, like, I saw this, didn't agree with it, or my lady at the time, or my parents at the time, mm. they didn't agree with this. I just didn't know what affected you guys. Yeah, you would see the headlines, but I didn't really care. Yeah, I, I've watched the Oprah interview, you know, for research for this podcast, and I watched the uh, Today interview, mm -hmm. and um, the Oprah interview. He's just a dude in love. He's just crazy happy about it. He's excited, brings out his girl, and he's just ecstatic. And then the uh, the interview on today, um, it's written as him lashing out or being um, antagonistic. But when I watch it, it's not necessarily the case. He's just passionate about something that he may be wrong about. I, ha I heard rumors, too, on that Oprah interview that he was jet-lagged from that, from coming from your or something, and like it went right into it. So it's just like... Not that there's an excuse, I guess, but it's just like, that'll affect you, you know? Like, you're yeah. just like, fuck, I I'm, don't even know what's going on. Yeah, but I will I will say this, though. Like, personally, I do find some of his comments about, you know, psychiatry iffy. Oh, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not saying I agree with that at all, either. I was just curious if it, like, again, we're talking, you know, 14 years ago, if this influenced your decision to watch this movie or not. Oh, I mean, no. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, now, looking back on it, yeah, I don't agree with, I mean, psychiatry does you know, great things for a lot of people. I will never, ever knock it, but Same. at the time, it's like, if I'm deciding to go watch this movie or not because of those comments, I don't think it really affected me personally yeah. at the time. Yeah. 
let's talk about uh, South Park and Mission Impossible 3. Uh, Mission Impossible 3's release was surrounded by controversy caused by an episode of South Park titled Trapped in the Closet, which aired November 15th, 2005, and created the drama known as, uh, quote, Closet Gate. Uh, shout out to LA Times for that that name. Uh, in this particular episode, Stan, Stan Marsh, uh, is believed by Scientologists to be the reincarnation of their founder, L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, he ends up meeting a frustrated Tom Cruise during the episode who locks himself in the closet which is a reference to past rumors that Tom Cruise was gay. I believe in the late 90s, early 2000s. I remember that, yeah. yeah and that's where the whole girlfriend thing is coming from, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically, by the end of the episode, the audience is told uh, what Scientologists actually believe, and Stan reveals to everybody on the show that Scientology is just a huge money-making scheme. Uh, this episode is known for causing Isaac Hayes, who plays Chef, right, uh, to actually leave the show because he didn't like how the show made fun of religion even though South Park was making fun of religions for the longest time. And he's a Scientologist. Isn't that kind of bullshit? It's just it is like bullshit. they make fun of everything. Like they, it's, it's like they don't like single anyone out. It's like everything, they, anything and everything they make fun of. Yeah. Which is the beauty of it, I think. Like, yeah, it, nobody's no, safe. No, no one's safe. Nothing is safe. And it's just like they just don't give a fuck. And it's just like you're either on board or you're not. But it's like just because they made fun of this, like now it's, oh, no, no, wait, wait, you can't do that. Yeah, I think I always thought it was bullshit too. And this is kind of um, when I say back in high school, I knew about the whole Scientology thing because I remember when uh, Isaac Hayes left the show and I was like, that's stupid. And then I read online, yo, he's a Scientologist and he's pissed off that they made fun of Scientology. And I was just like, what kind of, yeah, like you said, Jason, it's total bullshit. You could have humor about everything. Like yeah. whether you believe in it or not, or you, you, you do something or not or whatever, like they're going to touch on it. And it's like, you got to take it with a grain of salt. It's, it's just, it's just for comedic purposes. It's just, they're just making fun of everything. Like you have to, I mean, especially on that show more than anything like that. And probably family guy, you got to have like a the thick skin, yeah. the, yeah, the, yeah. the office, <laughs> the Simpsons. I mean, some of these shows that just, they don't care. Like you got to go in there knowing, Hey, at one point or another, this is going to touch on something that I hold near and dear or I like, or I do, or I am. And it's like, just you got to just laugh at it because it's just you know either stereotypes or whatever it is it's just like wait well, it is what it is like that's bullshit yeah you're 100% right and i kind of feel like south park had been around for a long time up until this point mm -hmm. so i'm just like if you didn't think that they were going to touch on something like you said jason that you are or hold near and dear at any point in time like you could have jumped off the train years ago years ago but you decided to stay along and when they finally talk about your religion all of a sudden you get offended choosing to be a part of that and then like getting mad at something like that it's just it's total it's total bs man in my in my eyes like it's kind of hypocrisy right i mean like you're allowed is. to like yeah i mean because touch on everything else but when it comes to you oh no we're not gonna do that yeah because like, yeah because they touch on everything and it's like well why don't you get mad about that even though it affects your life like it affected you know you know, John's life that, you know, as a writer, like he was bummed out or whatever, like he does this and it's like, well, just because, I don't know, it just, it is like hypocrisy. Yeah. It's like you go balls in or you're not doing it, you know? Yeah. But as this um, South Park episode kind of relates to Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible 3, people were concerned because South Park's creators, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, worked with Comedy Central, which is owned by Viacom, which just happens to own Paramount which Tom Cruise has teamed up with to make this movie. Uh, people were afraid that Tom Cruise might sue or it might ruin the studio's relationship with any and all parties involved. Uh, in addition to that, the Church of Scientology is known for taking legal action against people or other entities that kind of parody or make fun of the religion. Um, it got so bad that they actually canceled the January 2006 airing of Trapped in the Closet in the UK. 
Um, the episode did air in the U.S., however, and was supposed to rerun in uh, the United States in March 2006, but Comedy Central canceled the broadcast and aired another episode instead with like zero notice, so they didn't tell anybody. Uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker said that they found out about the episode being pulled on the internet, and they were not told by Comedy Central at all. Apparently, Tom Cruise was so pissed off about this episode airing that he threatened to pull out of all his Mission Impossible 3 promotional duties, so like the press tour, etc., um, if they didn't pull Trapped in the Closet off the air. So Viacom did what he asked and made Comedy Central do it. Uh, at the time, Comedy Central denied this, saying that they opted to air episodes featuring Chef as a tribute to Isaac Hayes, who left the show after Trapped in the Closet aired. What I read on Wikipedia was that uh, Tom Cruise apparently is so powerful in Hollywood at this time that he even got a sex scene featuring Katie Holmes and Aaron Eckhart removed from Thank You for Smoking before it was released. Like, that's how much pull he had in uh, Hollywood at this time. Um, in response, South Park fans threatened to boycott Mission Impossible 3 unless Viacom put Trapped in the Closet back on the air, um, with some fans contacting Viacom directly and creating a petition to make their voices heard. Uh, some people even speculated that the boycott, along with Cruz's prior behavior, hurt Mission Impossible 3's earnings in theaters. I did not know anything about this until I researched the movie. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that South Park episode? Yeah. Is it good? I mean, oh, yeah. I kind of want to watch it now, but I mean, so it really just goes after Scientology, right? The whole episode. Oh, I'll, I'll get to it towards the end, but okay. like this episode goes after it. And I remember seeing this when it premiered because in high school, like there's two things we watched in high school, Chappelle Show and South, South Park. Park yeah. yeah. So we, we saw every South Park episode when I was in high school and we saw this when this aired. Yeah. Wow. I want to say I did see this episode, but it... It wasn't like, wow, this is so gammy. I didn't think it was like... That's what I'm yeah, trying to I, get at. Like, I, I didn't think it had such a huge... Cause I've, I've seen things that Family Guy does in South Park where I'm like, it's funny. They acknowledge it in yeah. a sense. Is it really that offensive? It, it, to me, it was like South Park was known for doing this. So it, right. the shock value yeah. wasn't there anymore. To me, anytime they, they make fun of something, I'm like, okay, it's South Park making fun of something. They, they've yeah. done this before. It's not It's not like, wow, they're, they're really stretching limits. They've never done this before. They, they've done this repeatedly so to me when i saw the episode it was just like eh, all right it's funny whatever uh in an april 2006 interview tom cruise said that he had nothing to do with comedy central pulling the episode off the air uh, pretty much saying that he's too busy working to worry about what people are saying about him do you think that's bs yes i think it's bs too man oh yes yeah he put a head out like you don't yeah. just okay you don't pull a show off the air without telling the creators of the show no no no. but wait he's too busy to oh too busy <laughs> to care oh he's too busy of course he did this like of course he had this episode pull. i i bet you the house that he did this yeah. come on you just talked about him complaining about a girl's teeth being too square like what the fuck was that shit like yeah. he pays yeah. attention to like the, the littlest things and the thing is too um around this time uh tom cruise was known for uh taking legal action against people that uh kind of talked about him being gay or whatever at this time so i mean the the south park episode is literally called trapped in the closet he locks himself in the closet r kelly has to sing to get him out <laughs> remember that uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so Chuck, the trapped in the closet <laughs> series r kelly yeah, yeah. And he's just like we and i pulled that. out my gun i was pulling up i was singing that shit all in high school <laughs> Yeah, so that was really popular at the time. So they included all of that in this episode. And the icing on the cake is just making fun of Scientology in general. But imagine being Tom Cruise. You're Tom fucking Cruise. And you're letting South Park... Get to you. Get to you. I mean... I mean, Isn't got it to, kind of got to Kanye? Yeah, I got to Kanye. <laughs> got to a lot of, yeah, I guess okay, Kanye too. Like you're yeah. really gonna let this get? You're gonna let a show that just 
satirizes and just goes after everybody, like just makes fun of everything. Like really get to you? Like you're really gonna, I mean, you should be thankful that, I mean, they're just, they're they're talking about you. Like you're obviously someone of importance. Like yeah. who gives a fuck? Like of course it's not true or of course like that's not how you feel or whatever. It's just like, let it go. Like, it, like I don't oh, know. He's given them too much power. I yeah, kind of feel all like. Yeah, press is good press. So you just keep it moving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's how I kind of yeah, feel. Any press is good press. That's exactly yeah. what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah. And yeah. I think. Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's just the kind of people, and I'm not going to label any celebrity or such, but I think it's just like, it's like you're at the top of your game, you know, you maybe had some recent controversy or whatever, and maybe this is just the icing on the cake, or it's just, you're just that type of person that just does not like your image being altered or tarnished in any single way. And that's maybe the ego finally got the best. I think the ego is ego. Yeah. I think that's what it is too. Um, so around the same time in 2006, uh, fans posted the episode online to YouTube so that other people could watch it. Uh, for whatever reason, Comedy Central never tried to take it down from YouTube. And this is before, you know, you had copyright laws and shit like that. So you could watch anything on YouTube at that time. Even so, at the time, Comedy Central still had clips of the episode on their website. So they never took it offline. They never uh, filed legal action against people for putting it on YouTube. Uh, but they just took it off the air for whatever reason. We know the reason. Uh, in May 2006, Trey Parker and Matt Stone hosted a free screening of the episode in London's National Film Theater as a display of free speech, handing out free copies of the episode to anybody that attended. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that. That's that's the best middle finger yeah. you can give. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Parker and Stone released a statement about the whole ordeal saying, quote, So Scientology, you have won this battle, but the million-year war for Earth has just begun. <laughs> This will not stop us from keeping Thetans forever trapped in your pitiful man bodies. Curses and drat, you have obstructed us for now, but your feeble bid to save humanity will fail. Hail Xenu, end quote. So, you know, satirizing their religion and shit yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until July 2006 that Comedy Central aired the episode again with Matt Stone saying in a Variety interview that if they didn't put the episode back on the air, trapped in the closet, they wouldn't be doing business with Comedy Central anymore. So they were ready to just wow. cut cut all ties from Comedy Central if they didn't put that shit back on the air. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I, I love that they stick to their guns, yeah. Um, but overall, the surrounding controversy of this episode, Isaac Hayes leaving and Tom Cruise's involvement boosted publicity and popularity of the episode and the South Park series in general, with Trey Parker saying that, quote, Tom Cruise has done more for South Park than anybody else in the world could have. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so they, they, got, the, they got the good press. Um, they ended up submitting the episode for an Emmy nomination as a fuck you to Comedy Central. Uh, that's what they said. And the nomination actually went through. So they did it as like a big middle finger to to the people they work with. And, you know, the Emmys actually approved it. Wow. Uh, but they actually ended up losing the award to uh, The Simpsons. So oh, The Simpsons shit. actually won the award. Can you imagine? Yeah. If that would have won, that would have been so fucking badass. Too. Oh, yeah. Uh, fun fact, uh, Jenny Miscavige Hill, the niece of the chairman of Scientology, uh, David Miscavige, the dude that we talked about earlier, uh, she said that she first learned about Xenu. Xenu is kind of their overlord, I guess, in Scientology. She learned about the what Scientology really is from the South Park episode. And um, she says in a serious XM interview that the whole Xenu story is like heavily guarded and it's held in locked rooms or if there's a copy of it going around, it has to be held in a briefcase and you're surrounded by security. Anybody who knows about the Xenu story or the true story of Scientology has to be like audited constantly to make sure they're not betraying the religion. So like really, really quick, um, Scientology is basically 
DLC for religion. Like everything is locked behind like a tier or paywall. Yeah. So you don't get to learn the Scientology secrets until you've donated a certain amount or have been involved a certain amount of time. Like level up, right? Yeah, pretty much. So it's just like all that Xenu stuff, like you have to be like in the know, like super, super, super high up to know about any of that shit. And um, if you ever, you guys said you've seen it, right? Jason, the Trapped in the Closet episode? I I don't think I have. I haven't seen that one. Okay, if you ever watch it, that episode is notorious for spilling all the beans on what Scientologists actually believe. So um, L. Ron Hubbard, I believe he's a science fiction author and he kind of founded his religion. And, um, you know, as such... The foundation of Scientology, or at least the the back history, if you want to say it, is kind of rooted in that kind of feel. Mm. Um, they talk about how there's like this overlord Xenu who like killed a bunch of aliens and trapped their souls in a volcano, and then the souls came out and they entered human bodies, and that's who we are, like wandering around in human bodies. But it's funny because the South Park episode, they somehow found out what Scientology is actually all about, and they broadcasted it to the world. The shit that these guys keep so heavily guarded, they put it on blast. And if you watch the episode towards the end, there's a caption that plays the entire time they're describing it, and it's and it's in big bold letters, and it says, "This is what Scientologists actually believe." So uh, it's an entertaining episode, like pretty much every episode of South Park is. But uh, I'd uh, definitely say check that out if you haven't watched that episode. It's uh, trapped in the closet. Right. I feel like after this, we yeah. should watch it. I'll be watching it right after this. Yeah, yeah we're looking it up. Yeah, um, but. Let's talk about the movie, yeah? Yeah, what movie, what movie are we talking about? I think it's Mission Impossible uh, 3. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do that. I think my pay went down. Like, I'm like, <laughs> we can still call this a number, right? So Mission Impossible 3? Yeah, we can do that. This is the last one we can call it, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Can't, can't say 4, 5, or 6. <laughs> Moving on to the filming. Uh, shout out to Fun Fact Films on uh, YouTube. It's a cool channel that does a lot of these uh, fun fact videos. Uh, so first thing I got from that was uh, that warehouse where Tom Cruise rescues Ferris was completely empty, uh, and they had to build every object that you see in that shootout sequence uh, from scratch out of wood and plastic, and then it was painted to look like real metal equipment. Yeah, so that's actually supposed to take place in Berlin, Germany, right? Mm-hmm. However, we are in San Bernardino, California right now, which is what I got is filmed in Fontana, correct? Kaiser Steel Mill, right? Yeah, and so that's what, like 15 miles away from us where we're at, or is even 15, closer? Not huh? 90, 15 miles. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's right down the street. I really love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um, real close to the, the Auto Club Speedway. Yes. Yeah, so I remember hearing about that and um, now looking at the scene, like I can like, oh shit, I've driven by that many a fucking times. <laughs> like, I'm like, I know exactly where that is at. It's so cool that they did that there. Yeah. Yeah, so is that the Kaiser Steel Mill? And so, they also filmed parts of Transformers there also Terminator 2 there you go. Judgment yeah, Day yeah, that, that nice. and this is the weirdest one uh, Mortal Kombat the first one what, what? Really? yeah so scene. it was uh, on the Outworld scenes of the movie yeah but it was filmed there too the first oh, wait, Mortal fights Kombat fights Reptile he fights Reptile in the first one? Yeah, no. he, fights, he fights Reptile in the second one. Yeah. 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 No, Reptile's not even a factor. No, he yeah. fought, where he fights uh, like like Goro and everything. That's the Outworld, right? No, he yeah. fights a Reptile in the, in the first one. Oh, he does? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like the little chameleon looking thing and then he gets lodged into like a, like a statue. We're talking about uh, Mission Impossible 3. Yeah, we got to talk about Anyways, yeah, we got to <laughs> Sorry, sorry, yeah. I'm getting away from it again. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. But yeah, it's Kaiser Steel movie. Mortal Kombat is still the best thing, though. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right, so um, another thing, uh, they did not film at the Vatican. Uh, they actually filmed at a palace in Caserta, Italy, uh, which was about two and a half hours away from the Vatican. Uh, and they also filmed in Rome, which is about 15 minutes away from the Vatican. Uh, for the wall sequence, they built a 40-foot one-sided 
two-sided wall. The part where Tom Cruise is climbing up the Vatican wall was filmed in Rome. Uh, the part where he's posted on top of the wall facing the Vatican was filmed in Caserta. The shots that faced outside of the Vatican wall were then filmed again in Rome. And for his descent down the wall, they redressed the entire 40-foot wall like redid it, redesigned it completely to look like the interior of the Vatican wall. That's a lot of effort just to film climbing over one wall. And it's crazy too, because if you watch the scene, so when he's about, he's going up the wall, Mm -hmm. he's in Rome. And as he goes up and the camera comes over, it flips around. Now you're seeing Caserta. Like it's just like a seamless shot too. It's so cool because... that's how they use this wall on the green screen. I don't know. I just, if you go back and watch this scene, like he's running up and you know, he's running up just this wall and then they film it and they have that scene at Caserta, which is obviously nowhere near where this is supposed to be. It's, it's pretty fucking amazing. The the other part too is the drop. I don't know if you're going to talk about this career, but the drop scene, it took three attempts. So I don't know if you remember, but he gets on top Uh, He shoots the snapshot. He puts it in front of the camera. But now he has to, like, drop down on the other side. Didn't he hit his face the first one? He hit his whole body. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He hit his whole body. Well, it wasn't the first time. The first time he he was shy. Oh, okay. It was just shy. But then they they put too much slack on it, I guess. And he fell all the way down and hit his whole body. And, like, I guess, you know, J.J.'s first, like full feature film just he fucked like, up Tom Cruise <laughs> well he, yeah he's like freaking out. he's like we just hurt the money maker right now I was like what the fuck are we gonna do on the third time he actually hits he wow. hits the ground and that's the scene that we actually see in the film too I guess part of it like the the one that he comes down oh okay and then we see the one where they, they did it correctly yeah. where he doesn't hit the ground but I, t- I just think that's an amazing scene when you know that they're actually using the wall and they're not right there in Rome at the Vatican it's just, it's so seamless between the two, knowing that's just a wall. It's not even there. Current, you brought up that, that they, they did go to Rome, Italy, and all that. I heard that the first shot for this whole movie was the boat scene out in Rome, Italy. And it was kind of like crazy because JJ's all like kind of curious or first motion picture I got to do and all that. But it really bonded everyone because they're out there in Rome and all that stuff. But that was like the first scene. And then he kind of like, I don't, I don't want to say it got his dick wet and that one scene I mean I don't know you know I mean like that's what it was you know I thought that was kind of cool because it got them all on board and they're all like they, I guess they bonded like the cast and the crew and everything yeah. while they were in Rome but the first scene was uh, that they filmed was in Rome Italy which is the boat scene them coming out through that area yeah like yeah. Um, the cast had like never met each other at yeah. that point and so like their first outing together was just like Tom Cruise and so like before they even started shooting uh, Tom Cruise was just like yeah get on the boat and he just drove yeah. he just yeah. Drove them around, and they had such a good time that they were all just like gelling, like super cool. The rest of the movie, yeah. yeah. But also freaking out because like yeah. Tom Cruise is like kind of flooring it. Dude, this <laughs> guy is good. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the first time you're in there, and he's like, "Oh my god!" You're just like flooring it through Italy. They, but yeah, you're right. They did bond a lot, and that that was the first thing they shot. You're right. Yeah. Um, so uh, another thing we got is uh, the people at the Caserta Palace. Uh, they were not 100% on board with them blowing up the uh, orange Lamborghini on site. Uh, so they pre-cut sections of the car and chained down certain parts of the vehicle so that they could kind of control where the debris flew. So they made sure that no large pieces could fly off into the distance and other things like that. So it was a very controlled explosion. I um, thought on the bottom of it, they put like sand and stuff and they put like a platform. Yeah. So it wouldn't make any like, like marks box. or something when they did blow it up. Is what yeah. I, I saw. Yeah. Yeah. They re- so, you know, the cobblestone street, yeah. they actually recreated that oh, okay. and put that on top of the actual street. So that oh, way uh, that would get damaged instead of the street itself. Yeah. They put sand and they built the tile out of fiberglass. 
this Lamborghini is like an amazing car too. And I think they had three or four of them they, that they used throughout the movie. I think one of them was just a prop car and that's probably the car we're seeing that gets blown up. But you just see them just hacking into this thing. Yeah. So when it blows up, they were so concerned about debris hitting and damaging any of this national monument to them. And then like you were saying, Kerwin, they did chain everything down, but it's just crazy. Like the whole floor even, they don't want to even damage the cobblestone that's yeah. down there that they put, like you said, the sand, but then they put this fake fiberglass floor above it so that when it blows up, like literally nothing is destroyed. The funny part about this is this is the last scene that they shot there too. Yeah. Because yeah. J.J. Abrams is like, hey, I'm going to shoot all this other stuff because if I shot this first, we might not be able to get all the other things. So if we fuck it up, <laughs> we can just get out of here. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Smart men. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next thing we got is... Um, so that bridge sequence, mm-hmm. uh, I think when they're in what, Florida? Was it Florida? Maybe? No? Well, I think it's supposed to be in Virginia. Okay. But it, they actually shoot in Calabasas. Calabasas yeah, so, is yeah. what I got. Yeah. yeah, so it takes place in uh, Virginia, but uh, it's not a real bridge. They actually took, like you said, Jason, they took an empty plot of land in Calabasas and they just built a bridge-like road out there in the middle of fucking nowhere. They CGI'd all the water around it. Yeah, so like yeah. after they filmed everything, they just used the, the VizFX team to, to make it into that bridge in post-production. Other thing, uh, the Shanghai skyscraper scene, uh, that was completely composited. Um, they used uh, in-studio shots of Tom Cruise against a green screen. They merged that with actual aerial footage of the actual city of Shanghai. So that whole thing is put together in post-production, which is pretty cool. I remember them saying that um, their initial shot of it was from a helicopter. So I think there's one real shot of the building in Shanghai. But I think because of just issues with getting camera equipment up there and all that kind of stuff that they're like, hey, you know what? We're not going to even fuss with this. So they did, like you said, everything in the green screen in the studio, which I was kind of bummed about because I thought that was such a cool scene when the helicopter comes through and shoots it. But yeah, that's all I have for that one too. Can we go back to the the bridge scene? Yeah. So Tom Cruise is known for doing his own stunts. Mm -hmm. The stunt on the bridge scene, he's got a couple, but the main one is when that drone aircraft whatever comes detonates a bunch of bombs and he is running we'll get into that <laughs> he's running uh, but he's running and the momentum of the explosion forces him into a car, car right yeah. you know he actually did that himself and it's very amazing what he's doing one guy that was a stuntman said if any other guy is a stuntman that had this in the resume they would have jobs lined up. And the fact that like it was just Tom Cruise doing it, he's not a stuntman, I gotta give him credit for that. It's just like, if any stuntman does this, like, hey, that's on their resume and they have jobs forever. But it was like, Tom Cruise like, no, I'm gonna do it. And he does it like to the perfection. I think that, that's like so cool, dude, you know? Yeah. He's putting like stuntmen out of work and stuff. Kind of, he's like, fuck you, I'm doing it, you know? It's like, like one yeah. of those ads where it's just like, doctors hate him. It's like for Tom Cruise, it's like stuntmen hate him. <laughs> like, I, I bet you all this stuff has JJ just freaking out too because like yeah. he's so willing to do all these stunts yeah. like you think about even back at the then the berlin scene where yeah. he's like they're falling down onto the truck right. or anything like that it's just all these scenes that he's willing to do on his own i mean i would be shitting bricks too because it's like that he's <laughs> our your, payday right golden there. boy yeah yeah because yeah. yeah, even remember john woo was like freaked out too during mission impossible 2 during all, yeah. the, all his stunts like yeah. he was like freaked the fuck out that tom cruise wanted to do everything and he does it so well too like that scene, like if you go back and watch it on the bridge, oh, it's, it's, it's intense. It's so yeah. intense. So we always talk about Tom Cruise running so much in his movies. The very end scene where he's trying to find Julia, right? So he's trying to find Julia and they're actually, I'm going to really butcher this name, but I think it's Xi Chang China. I, I don't know. It's Z-I-T-A-N-G, China. But anyway, they actually go to China to film the scene, but like he's running a lot 
And when I was watching the behind the scenes of the film, um, they rigged up what they called a spider cam. And if you remember the scene, there's like this little like river, river. or stream in between like um, these two little villages. And he's running down a sidewalk of one of them. And how they did it was they like built this big apparatus that held these strings and this cam was able to just follow him all the way down the river. Yeah, it just followed him all the way down the river. And they said um, at one point he had to do a sprint of, I think it was about 1,100 feet. So I I got that. So he he ran 1,100 feet, which is the equivalent to a little over or about 3.5 football fields. Here's my funny thing. He couldn't wait to do this scene. Like he wanted to so bad. Like it was like his thing. Like I, I couldn't wait to do it because he wanted to run down this little section and like get it all done. Because I mean I don't know. I'm gonna be stereotyping Tom Cruise him wanting to run in a movie. He just I don't likes know. to run, dude. Man. Well, he's really good at it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, you know. Yeah. But yeah, no, eleven hundred feet, three point five football fields. They do cut it up, I think, but it, you can see the continuous shot go all the way down, right? You it's, know, and, it's pretty good. Yeah. And the crazy part is that they're all locals. Like yeah. all those people there are locals. So they have like translators that there's like Tom Cruise is like really trying to say, hey, this take is on film. Yeah. We're doing it for real. I'm going to be running at full speed. Like you have to get out of the way while I'm running down here. I don't know how true this is, but on the behind the scenes, they said that the cam, the spider cam was moving at about 16 to 17 miles an hour to keep read, up with him. I heard that too, yeah. He was that fast, yeah. Damn. I mean, he's sprinting down there. It's, yeah. Jeez. Remind me of the Office episode. Oh, and Michael's just like, <laughs> yeah, 35 right. miles an hour, did it, beat it, beat it. Cover it's like, load. It's like, Michael, that doesn't count, there was a car. Nope, nope, I won, I beat Oscar. Nope. It's physically impossible. <laughs> beat it! <laughs> I love that episode too. No, but like, it's pretty impressive, like when they show how they did this, like it's in between like these two bridges and it's just like these huge like cables that are carrying this camera just going... 15 miles plus just keeping up with Tom. It's pretty freaking impressive and it's all locals there. It's like a yeah. small fishing uh, town. It was actually in China. Yeah, yeah. it's at a small fishing town and it's just like, they just have translators everywhere saying like, hey, like, we're not trying to interrupt your day. <laughs> like Tom Cruise is going to come run down this little alleyway. It was, it was pretty cool. But at the beginning of that scene too, they said that out of all the stunts that they were most nervous about was when he got out of the window and was on the roof. They said that the tiles and everything on those roofs were so slick and so unstable. And he, again, doing his own stunts. Like Put he's like- stuntmen out of business. <laughs> dude, he's hopping around and jumping around like people, like producers, stuntmen, everyone on set were, was just freaking out that one, cause he's just hopping around real quick that one misstep, one of these tiles are gonna slip out and he's gonna fall down because he's he's elevated. Wow. And then he goes into this run, like right after, I mean, obviously in the movie it's right after, but like in this scene, he like, he jumps down from it. It's like this whole scene in China is pretty good, even though it's not a lot of like action, it's just him running and stuff, but it's, it's pretty dangerous. Um, one thing that I wanted to bring up, uh, marketing this movie, they had an actual issue. Did you guys read about this? So at newsstands, they wanted to play the theme song when opened. Um, what was wrong with this though is that you could have the wire so when it would actually open the song would go on of the Mission Impossible people actually thought it was a bomb because they could see the wires and all that stuff so yeah. because of that they actually had to bring in the bomb squad on certain things so they quickly shut that down because it was like no we can't do this yeah. but yeah what they wanted to do is where you would open a newsstand and the Mission Impossible theme song would like go on mm-hmm. and I guess it's just too many conspiracy people like no it's, it's pull that because they thought it was a bomb squad yeah or a bomb itself yeah 
yeah, so that was it for the movie. Uh, real quick, though, uh, going into the soundtrack and the music for this movie. Um, so this movie, the score was done uh, by Michael Giacchino, who's like a frequent collaborator of J.J. Abrams. He did uh, the Incredibles movies, uh, the Star Trek reboot uh, for the three films, and uh, he also did Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Also, the song that plays at the end credits is uh, Impossible by Kanye West featuring Twista. Uh, which does not go with this movie at all. No, it does. It does not go with this movie at all. Shout out to old Kanye. Uh, so let's get into our experience. Uh, Jason, why don't you tell us your experience with Mission Impossible Three? My experience is nothing to note. I mean, I saw this in theaters. I liked it a lot. Personally, I wasn't the hugest fan of Mission Impossible Two. I grew to like it. My dad loved it, so I watched it a lot. But going to this one, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a lot different than the second one. Actors, I wasn't expecting to see it like Philip Seymour Hoffman. I was happy to see Ving Rhames again. But, uh, I mean, nothing to know. I, I just remember thoroughly enjoying it. This is definitely, again, a movie that when it comes on or it's on Netflix, I'll watch it again. Um, but, yeah, no, nothing real crazy to know on my experience on this one. All right. Uh, Dominic, what is your experience with Mission Impossible 3? Uh, similar to Jason's. I have I saw it in theaters. I remember that. But I have like no significant like memory that stands out to where, like, where it was or my exact feelings at the time. But I remember enjoying the movie. Mugga, what's your experience? I, I know I saw it in theaters, but I cannot tell you who I was with or whatnot. I just... I enjoyed it. Um, I, yeah, I have no I, memorable person. I, uh, that sucks, you know. But yeah, I watched I'm trying it. Trying to remember theaters. 14 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But, and I really enjoyed it. But uh, but yeah, I don't have any experience as far as what I can bring to the table right now. All right, uh, Bling. What's your experience? So I did not see this film in theaters, and in fact, I think I stumbled upon it. I think it was playing in the background on HBO, and so I was just like, oh, it's Mission Impossible. I'm like, all right, and so it was kind of playing and. I think when the, the the helicopter scene started going on, and I was like, I was like, hey, I know that place. And then I just kind of like went from a movie that was playing in the background to actually watching it, and that's how I actually ended up watching Mission Impossible Three for the first time. It was like, you know, it was just kind of playing in the background. I wasn't really interested and cared to watch it, and then it just kind of caught my attention, and then I ended up watching it. And I actually did thoroughly enjoy the film. So that was my first time watching that film. Uh, my experience with the movie. I did not see it in theaters. I can't tell you the first time I saw it, but I'd only seen it one time prior to this podcast. But I specifically, like vividly remember the commercial for this movie playing during the Super Bowl. The only thing I could remember is a missile going off and then Tom Cruise being yanked into that car from the force of the blast. And I was like, yo, that looks badass. But at the same time, I was just like, yo, they're still making these Mission Impossible movies. Like they really need to make a part three. I don't know when or where I watched it for the first time. It might have been on like HBO or Cinemax or some shit during college. Watched it again maybe about two weeks ago for this podcast, and that's my experience. Yeah. yeah. Moving on to uh, Trash and Treasure. Uh, let's get right into it. So, Jason, uh, what is your Trash and Treasure with this movie? Uh, I don't have a lot of trash, but one thing that kind of stood out from the beginning is when they're having the party at Tom Cruise's house and he drives off to meet up at the convenience store. He's driving a Volvo station wagon. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like you just think about Ethan Hunt and you're just like, well, I cannot drive a Volvo. This motherfucker is really trying to have that normal life. I think he's really trying Nicholas to Nicolas Cage drives a Volvo, yeah, page yeah. one, in The Rock. You can't have Ethan Dude, Hunt doing Vol- it. Volvos have the, the highest safety rating of any uh, by, by the NTSA. Okay, like. Ethan Hunt is really concerned <laughs> about safety. Like, do we see saying. what he fucking does? No, but like, I just saw that. I'm like, any kind of four door sedan I would have been fine with or a coupe of any kind, but a, a freaking Volvo station wagon. A station wagon. They don't have kids. Why the fuck do they have a station wagon? Um, after they save uh, Tom Cruise's apprentice, I forget her name, when the time release charge goes off in her yeah. head, just yeah. when her eyes go Eye like, twitches. oh, dude, yeah. that's so creepy. Uh, yeah. It creeped yeah. me the fuck out. Um, so you, you didn't like it or you just it disturbed you? Uh, it just disturbed I mean, okay. I'm not saying I didn't like it. I mean, I appreciated the the way it looked, I guess, but it just creeped me out. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm stretching for trash they, on something because yeah. I really like this movie. They yeah. stayed on her face for like a cool like second. I was like, Ugh. Yeah, it's like one eye straight and the other eye is like, like turned <laughs> up and it's and just like all distorted. cloudy. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's a weird look. I like the mask scene, but I kind of don't like it really? too. Really? Yeah. At the Vatican? Yeah, I don't know why. I just so when you watch it, like they make it look too simple. They make it look so simple. Like Tom Cruise puts this blob of a formless head, like it's just around this thing, and then like they close it in the box, and it does like the laser cutting or whatever it does, mm-hmm. and it just when they put it on Tom Cruise, I don't know. I it's I like really- I like the scene how the camera's going around him, you know. Yeah. And it shows like Vean Rames kind of like touching him down. Oh, well, before that they put the eyebrows on and stuff like that, which also looks shitty. Like, yeah. The eyebrows yeah. look shitty on there, but look great on him. Yeah. And then like they just touch and like, again, I'm, I'm stretching for my trash, but like I, it's in my treasure. I I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I I liked how it was kind of. It shows you how they do it. They made yeah. it and they kind of touch on like 3D printing before 3D yeah. printing was even a thing. Like, yeah. oh, this is like the future. That's really, not, you didn't like yeah. it because like nah, when I they, didn't like it either, Jason. When they yeah. first put it on him, it looks like garbage. Yeah, and then yeah, it's the just mask like is garbage. Like Ving Rhames has a soft touch and just like pats <laughs> yeah. down his little cheekbones like in his face, yeah. like, and around his eyelids, and it's just like whips on this wig and it's just like boom like he's yeah he's Phillips was Hoffman now was it convincing it to me I mean again I appreciate them showing it yeah I'm not saying it's complete garbage I'm just saying like if I have to pick trash out of this like parts of it I'm just like I just wish it looked better when they initially put it on him mm-hmm. it's just okay. uh, again I'm grasping that should have been like CGI at yeah. least uh, maybe I don't know. It should have been something. Um, I like how they get the voice and stuff like that, but just that initial scene of them putting on um, the mask. Yeah, like yeah, it. them getting that voice. He's just reading gibberish. Like, what am I? Like, what is this? Like, yeah, I love that <laughs> scene. It's funny because he's but like, I don't know the initial <laughs> scene. I don't know. So even like a makeup artist will watch the scene. Like, it doesn't. take It's not that fucking quick. Like, it's not like, that yeah. quick to be that good. But I yeah. get you know, uh, whatever, whatever. Um, this is so again. I watched this with Elizabeth because I'm trying to expose her to some of these movies, and so she was. We were talking, and after at the very end, when it's you know we see the fake Julia that gets shot. So when he gets to the real Julia, and so now this time release charge is like igniting, and you know Tom Cruise's head and all this kind of stuff. Julia asks an obscene amount of questions. What's going on? Why do you have a headache? What, what's going on? What do I do with this? What do I do with this? How, how do I get here? What do I do? Like, if you go back and watch this, it's like question after question. And it's just like, so like Tom Cruise is holding his head, like, and he just like beat down Musgrave with his elbows. Like, yeah. 
Jesus. Like, it's an intense scene. It's an awesome scene. But then, like, he gets Julia out, and it's just, like, these question after question. And I don't care if I have a headache or not. I don't like questions like this. Like, it's insane. And it's like, Tom Cruise is... He beat Musgrave? No. No, he beat he beat Owen Davian and then Musgrave was killed by Julia. Okay, I'm sorry. Owen Davian. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, anyway, just the questions. Anyway, um, moving on that's all I have for my trash. My treasure, the opening. I like the opening to the movie. Jason. It just sets the tone. It is the best part of the whole movie. Yeah. It sets the tone, it keeps you guessing, it's just like Quentin Tarantino. Like it's just it's so cool. Like it shows the end at the beginning. I love it. Counting has never made me more apprehensive or Seriously, anxious. Seriously, yeah, it made me anxious. Like I'm, like I remember putting it on. I was like, "Oh shit, I'm locked in already." Yeah, like yeah. I'm opening this, watching this scene, especially with like a Philip Seymour Hoffman like yeah, leading this yeah. off, and I'm just like, "Man, he's so intense." I'm like, "What did I just get into?" Like this is like so. This is so much different than the second one. That's yeah. what I was thinking. We're about. a long way from Twister. <laughs> well, Tom, yeah, both of their performances. Like it was yeah. this. Yeah. No more Dusty with his balls hanging say? out. Food. Now, now he's like. <laughs> Seven, seven. <laughs> like, like he's just like a different guy. He man. likes to repeat a lot. I don't know. I, like I loved him in Along Came Polly. Like he was like the comedian oh, dude, outlet. Great. But oh like, yeah, raindrops. Yeah. <laughs> Make it rain. <laughs> but then uh, he goes to the serious role. I was like, whoa. Yeah, I was I was yeah. really impressed, and it's just right from the get go. Um, Jesse, we talked about. Being Tom Cruise's fiance's brother, I like that. And he uh, still screws shit up. He right? still, he's just, <laughs> he still does. He yeah, just shits like, the bed. Yeah. Like, come on, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> the opening scene when they are uh, saving uh, Lindsay, his apprentice, with the guns. I don't know, like at that Kaiser steel mill with Ving Rames. I don't know. Something that was so cool about like how he controlled the guns. I was really intrigued by that. Like it was so badass. Yeah, it's like a video my, game. That was my treasure too. It reminded me like I don't know if you play like a uh, Splinter Cell or like. Metal Gear. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like the sneaking ops kind of thing. You have to like set up things before you even like sneak in. And then when I was watching the movie, I was like, this is red dots. It's just going to appear on the top of their heads. Like these marking them and like knowing their location and stuff. So, but it's just cool. Like Ving Rhames like pushes a couple of buttons, all the keyboards lift up. And then it's just like he has all these like, it was just so, I just thought it was such a cool scene. Um, uh, I think Tom Cruise did a great job in that scene too. And then flying through the windmills, I thought that was, that was an awesome scene. Lawrence Fishburne. I love Lawrence Fishburne since mm-hmm. that since uh, uh, Boys in the Hood man since yeah. Boys in the Hood man yeah. I, I I love him Ving Rhames coming back Simon Pegg really caught me off guard mm-hmm. and of course Philip Seymour Hoffman I thought he did a great job um, the humor that Simon Pegg brings I just I love it man like it's so quick it's so witty when he's on the phone with them when like Tom Cruise is running he's just like saying all this shit like I'm gonna get arrested <laughs> I'm gonna do all this stuff or whatever it's just so funny the part where uh, Tom Cruise and the chick are in the Lamborghini and then like it opens up in the middle and you know Ving Rhames is just kind of waiting there and they just have like this little weird conversation where they get down it's just the humor that they like kind of like splinter into this is like it keeps you going it keeps it a little lighter I thought he was a lot more grounded especially like the conversation like Ving Rhames had with him when he's talking about The Apprentice like yo were you like banging her? <laughs> and it's like, uh, so I have to ask these questions because someone or someone else was like, yeah. yeah. She was like a sister. And he's all like, <laughs> well. Because <laughs> it, it is like, especially from like Philip Seymour Hoffman's perspective. Like, I mean, when you see him as the villain, like it's kind of dark. Like some of the scenes are really dark. I feel like some of the humor kind of just makes it a little lighter. And then I'll, I know you guys are going to touch on other things. I don't want to steal everyone's, but the scene on the plane with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. That was super intense. He's tied up 
about to fall out of a plane and yet somehow he's showing Ethan Hunt like I'm still in control like you know what I mean that's what I got out yeah, of it like he doesn't break like you don't know what you're talking about right now and just wait yeah yeah I, I see what you're saying it's I mean, a great scene he's cutting him down cord by oh, cord yeah. and he's, and like, he's, he's just not like, even phased he's a little frightened but then he like brings the chair back he's just laying there and he just calls him out yeah he's like, like oh and what I'm doing is should be the least of your worries yeah, yeah. and then he's like says Ethan and now he knows his name because like Ving Rains is calling yeah. out yeah and it's just like I don't know that was an intense scene but I have a lot more treasures but I'm going to leave it for you guys so that's like, all I got how the hell did he hear that <laughs> like, he was, he was it, yelling like, it 80 fucking times yeah, yeah. yeah well like yeah but Ethan it's not you man you're in a fucking plane going how many miles an hour and you got all this fucking wind and shit I'm like, just saying like that that's how in control he was man like Jesus he's Christ. just he's there I don't well, know I just think he already knew his name <laughs> I think it just plays to how good of a villain he is I don't yeah. know that's just me though yeah that's all I got all right, cool. Uh, Dominic, what's your trash and treasure with this movie? Trash. He cut his hair. <laughs> it's not pretty just enough. Fire, like, not pretty nah. enough for you. Nah, yeah. it's not. Like uh, like Jason said, I was I was pretty much reaching for a lot of my trashes. Um, like I didn't like the night vision goggles when they were infiltrating to save the apprentice. It just reminded me of like Michael Phelps in the Olympics, like just pulling them down. Like if you go back and watch it, I was just like. That's weird. Like, it doesn't look like the night vision goggles I envisioned or whatever. I've come to just accept that Ethan Hunt is just a deep lover. <laughs> like, he just falls in love really hard and he's trying to, like, balance his spy world with his, like, everyday normal life. Because in, like, in that uh, kitchen, like, the, the party scene, when he's, like, reading their lips and then it pops out and like, answers their question, I was yeah. like, this guy's a fucking creep. Like... You can get that vibe at all? No, no. He's just reading lips, man. No, it's like, but, but the way he went about it, he's just like Wanako, and then like they just all like accept it, and then he's like patting himself on the back because he can read lips and stuff like that. No, all right, maybe I, that I didn't get that vibe, but I, I was cool. Uh, it, treasure. Yeah. Really? Okay. Well, well I like the way it came yeah. full circle. Yeah, and stuff yeah. Like yeah. That. full circle because then it gets into when he's strapped down. Yeah, it must and be. He has to read. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I appreciated that when it came full circle. I'm like, okay, this is what it was in there though. But it's been a while since I watched the movie, so when I watched it, I was like, what the fuck's going on right here? And then the voice downloading scene, I felt like they could have, like, if anything, I don't know. This is being logical about it. If someone's asking you if you're okay and your voice thing isn't downloaded yet, I would just make like a hand gesture, like. I'm good. I don't know why they had to play that out. But he like, didn't even do that at first. He didn't say anything. Yeah, he no, just he, he just kept he just kept scrubbing his shirt. Looked at him. Went back down. And it's like he's not saying anything. Like you said, do a gesture. Do something. Like don't just stand there. Like do something. You're right. Yeah, I was really reaching for a lot of these ones. So my trashes are pretty weak. So, but everything else, I I'm pretty much on board with Jason. Like the opening scene. I was on board. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I loved him. I appreciated like the rendezvous point uh, was at a convenience store and not on a fucking park bench. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like it's over depicted in movies and spy thrillers and stuff like that. So I'm just like, okay, they're in the middle of the serial talking about <laughs> covert ops and stuff like that. So the movie felt more grounded and dangerous, which I appreciated. It wasn't like this grand old, like luxurious kind of thing that two was, I feel like. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, like, kind of some sort of erotic getaway. That was just my vibe. Um, the plot twist where it was actually not Lawrence Fishburne and actually the the guy that was like, what was his name? Musgrave? Yeah, yeah, it was Musgrave. That was good. I appreciated that. But yeah, everything else we already pretty much talked about, but those are my trash and treasures. All right. Mugga, what's your trash and treasure with this movie? I'll start with my trash. I, I Again, I had to reach on this. Did you guys notice that this movie takes place as far as a time frame so fast? 
Like, when does Ethan Hunt sleep? Like, he's literally <laughs> he's literally hanging out. He's like, I got to go somewhere for a conference, right? The first yeah. day. Uh-huh. That mission fails. And within, like, hours, they got to do other stuff to go get. It's just like, it's it's he's travels around the world. And all these things happen within, like, five days. It's like, is that really how it works? I, I don't know. You he know? sleeps on a plane. Yeah. On the planes, yeah. No, no he's trying to... <laughs> cut guys on a plane but yeah, yeah, yeah whatever again i am reaching mm-hmm. um you never find out what the rabbit foot is does that bother you guys no that's 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 a that's a, there's a movie I, uh it's called a mcguffin so oh really so like same thing in like pulp fiction we don't know what's in the suitcase i get that yeah, i still want to know what the rabbit foot is and, and, but they play they play on that they say hey yeah. you know, what's when yeah ask, like, and what's it's the very end yeah i still i still want to know yeah i still want to know yeah i still want to know so it's one of those um owen davian has a lot of connections so he, he gets captured at the Vatican, mm-hmm. and within hours, like as they're taking him back, he has not only a rescue team able to, and he's got that going on. Mm-hmm. They're capturing his wife right afterwards. I, I don't. It's just like really, you're that. I don't know, like that powerful. Like I, I just mm-hmm. I couldn't buy it because then when you go into Ethan Hunt realizes what's going on, so he wants to go check on Julia, mm-hmm. and she's already being kidnapped. You know, and what I don't like is that when he goes to the hospital, he actually bumps into her and in like what a bag or something because I, I don't like that. It's just like come on, man. Like you're not that dumb. You know, like there's a weird guy. Someone's escorting her out. I I don't like it. Again, I I am reaching. Um, I did not like the green screen for the DC background. Do you guys see that? Where he's talking to Julia on some sort of balcony or something, and you can see DC in the background. It's just so cheesy. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. No, yeah, some yeah. of you are laughing. No, we're not. No. It didn't bug me. I, mean, I, I didn't I like it, man. I didn't yeah, like it, dude. I didn't like it. Again, I was reaching. So that's my trash. I'll get into my treasure. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne. I thought he did a great job. That, that guy was great. I loved how he was in it. Um, I love how they connect the first parts of the movie to other parts. So one, Lake Wanaka, and you can see that whole circle come in. Did you guys notice when he was escaping after he was doing the lip reading at IMF headquarters, whatever it is called, the Virginia transport brochures when he knocked those over? Did you guys see that? I did, yeah. So, we knocked over so the he works for a traffic company and oh, all that Oh, the brochures. Yeah, 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 all yeah. That. I, I love how they do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. I thought the directing and the editing of the movie was great up. The close-ups they did, all the cuts. I love his team, but Luther, like you're right. I think Luther's great. I don't know why. Oh. Luther's like the voice of reasoning. Mm-hmm. I do like how they show the mask. You got, you really didn't like that, huh? I like the mask, I, too. I, I, I love how know. they I show it like, and the voice. It's like, here's how... I like Because they, they introduce it in two. Yeah. And you're like, well, okay, that's great and all, but how do you do it? Here they're like, no, no, here's how we do it, you know? And, and I, like, I, I like just feel like how. it looked like... I don't know, Mrs. Doubtfire, when they're like bringing out the different masks, yeah. you can yeah. tell they're fake. So I'm just like, and they put the, like these silly ass eyebrows on there, and it's like, okay, this is supposed to be like. Isn't yeah. that the worst part? The yeah. eyebrow part, right? Yeah, I was like, okay, this is not going to be believable, but then he just like presses it on, and then all of a sudden it looks <laughs> I, just I, like I, him. Like, I, I liked it because it gives you an answer to the second, uh, whatever. You it's know, a great I get idea it. to show us it's executed poorly, is what it is. I disagree. But um, my old time treasure of this movie is a tie between Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance, but the opening scene. I I think on that, you really see Tom Cruise acting in a sense, like that tear comes down. Uh Um, The way they go back and forth each other, it shows you at the very beginning, so you know what's coming. I mean, if you watch this with someone who has never seen it, you get excited because they see that, they're like, what the fuck happens? And then it's a great opening scene. I love his performance. I think he is a great villain in this, a top villain I've ever been, but yeah, those those are my treasures and I have to give him credit. He's so great in this movie, but yeah, those are my treasures. 
All right, Bling, what is your trash and treasure with Mission Impossible 3? All right, let me, let me start with my trash. Um, so my concern with this film is that, and actually this could also be a treasure as well, I feel like this film ignores all the events of like Mission Impossible 1 and 2. Like you don't even need to watch either one of them because anything that ever happened in the previous films is kind of ignored, uh, which is also going to be a treasure because then when you get into the next three films they start that they're they're all kind of tied to one another with Julia with Julia and just you know just introducing Benji he becomes a staple part of the group you can look at it both ways as being a trash but also a treasure because we ignore everything that happened in the last two films but then the next three films are tied to this film as well well. I think it has to do with like the trends of the time like 007s they don't all necessarily tie together correct yeah Yeah. you, you could you could say that each film was its own individual film and you didn't really have to you know make any connection to the following films or the predecessors so i could see where you're going with that but yeah that's one of the things that like i said i did notice with this film um another trash that i had was jonathan reese meyer for some reason i felt like around this time they were trying to make him like the next big thing uh, I know he'd done the tutors, and I think I thought they were trying to groom him to be the next big Hollywood star. And I'm just like, oh god! So that's why when I saw him in this film, like, is he in every movie or everything? Like, I, I feel like they're just shoving him in, and so I was kind of turned off by that, knowing that he's like Hollywood was pushing him to be the next big thing. And they've done this with other actors. Justin Long was another example. I feel like you know they were trying to push along, but for him, I thought he, that was one of the things that they were trying to do by him being in this kind of high-profile film. Right. Um, Rogue agents in IMF, I feel like there's always some agent that betrays the organization. We had it in the first one. We had it in the second one. We have it in this one. We have it in the sixth one. Like It's just like, what's wrong with the IMF? They can't hire... Dude, their hiring manager should be fired. <laughs> yeah, like seriously, like how can you do a goddamn background, background check? check like, seriously, right? yeah. that's what I was like, dude. We have another rogue agent. Like, I get it. It's kind of been done to death, and like this is the third film where they have it. And I'm just like, so I'm kind of turned off. But I mean, it wasn't the big overarching like villain in the film, so I could look past it. But I felt like here we go again. So that's yeah. another trash. I'm stretching here with the trash, but the treasures, I mean, let me, let me get started. So the opening scene, great opening scene. I think you guys touched on it. You jump right into film. Ethan is in, like, in a situation where he's like not in control. We don't know what the hell the rabbit's foot is. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's doing the countdown. Ethan is pleading with him. And then he just shoots Julie. And it's like, you think I'm playing? You don't think I'll do it? I thought it was just an amazing scene because you're still trying to piece together what's happening, what's it's going on. It's so intense. It's such yeah. a good scene. And then it just cuts back like, here's what's happened prior to that. Well, <laughs> you, you understand that that's his wife. He cares about her because he does shed the tear. You can see his acting, yeah. his emotions. And then they quickly go to where they're at an engagement party. Is that what it is? Yeah. Or yeah, or that's what I'm assuming. Yeah, it is. something like that. Yeah, where it's, it's like, like an oh, engagement party. So you already know you're taking place prior to that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great opening scene. Yeah, so great opening scene. Uh, another scene that I thought, and I actually had the question of this was uh, when they're trying to to break out Lindsay and he injects her with, what's it called? Adrenaline. Ooh, I was like, can, yeah. can you actually do that? Is that, act, can you actually extract adrenaline and just like, like just pump it into somebody and that's gonna be like, they can go from a comatose state to just like, let's go, let's get the hell out of here. I thought, I thought that was just like one of the coolest scenes. And I don't know, if, like I said, if something that's even real or possible, but. Well, Pulp Fiction showed us that was real, but. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought. Showed us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Let's see. The whole Vatican scene I thought was great. The one thing I did like is the whole Ethan descending from the top of the wall because I felt like that's a, kind of a staple in the Mission Impossible series. I think they... He's they, done that in like every, yeah, all he's, three of them. Yeah, he's done on all three. Now I'm trying to yeah. see, think. I think he 
it's become a staple. I think at some point in every one of his films, he's he doing has to do it, yeah. he's doing like the descending from like yeah. you know from a top of somewhere, you know, just kind of paying tribute to the first film. So I thought that was great for the Vatican scene. I liked the, the whole mass creation thing. I thought it was cool. I thought it was like exploring, like I said. 3D printing before it was even a thing. I like the voice modulation that he needed to do. Having the person talk nonsense to kind of create their vocabulary and words. I thought that was great. The whole bridge scene, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was, because even drones. Drones was like not really. A thing like, then. Like, it wasn't like mainstream. Like we, we know about drones and now, but it was a good way to introduce the world to something that's like now a staple in our everyday lives. So, and just the, just the use of weapons. I think it was cool. Like. You know, you actually see Ethan use a RPG. I think it was an RPG or RP something. But it just it was just nonstop action, you know. Explosions going around, you know, he's shooting stuff, you know, he's trying to take down this drone. I thought it was just a, a great scene overall. I think one cool part about that scene too is I think he gets like tossed into the car and then the drone comes over like super fast right, right away. Over. Yeah. But I imagine that CGI. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like he gets tossed in his car but has the wherewithal to like pop up and then like duck down. Because the drone freaks him out. It's just like, man, yeah. Th- yeah. it's just like he just acts. So and well and, and, and I felt like he was good too, because he was like, he since he got slammed, he was kind of like disoriented, and he's trying to figure out what was going on. So he wasn't just like, I'm Superman, I'm gonna jump right to back to my feet. I'm, I know what I'm gonna do. It, I felt like it, it felt really it felt real. real. Yeah. yeah, like he was, you know, there's so much action going on. He's kind of discombobulated, but he's trying to keep things together. And then, so that whole scene is just amazing. The whole, you know, getting the rabbit's foot, I thought that was a great scene as well. You know, just him jumping from, like, roof to roof. And then it's like, if he doesn't catch himself, like, he's going for a big fall. I thought it was just, just, the way it just played out was very well. I mean, like I said, this film is just just really good. I think you guys touched on everything else. Like, that's really the extent of my treasure. But, I mean, just great film overall. Uh, My Trash and Treasure. Um, Well, I mean, first, one thing I noticed is that uh, the opening credits of this movie doesn't show you a preview of the movie. The first two movies and the ones that come after, they all kind of show you, you Which know. Which I hate, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing from the show that they kind of carry over. Yeah. And uh, to your point, Bling, earlier, when you talk about how this movie is kind of disconnected from the first two, like the show was like that. Like you had a different crew every episode mm-hmm. and there was no real interconnectivity between each episode. So like, it's not, it's not quite a sequel, but it just features occasionally the same cast. Yeah. I think this movie ends that trend because immediately after... Uh, Mission Impossible 2, everything is a sequel to the next one, which I think is cool because I, I like where the, the franchise heads after this. Uh, so my my treasure, um, I like that he's riding the bike out onto the tarmac. That's like straight out of Top Gun. So <laughs> I thought I'll, the same thing. Yeah, all I could think was Top Gun. One thing I noticed, uh, the dude that puts explosives in people's heads, uh, the scientist guy, mm-hmm. he's the guy that uses the flamethrower in Hobbs and Shaw. You remember? <laughs> <laughs> you remember that guy? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. But uh, let me get into my trash before I go into the rest of the treasure. Um, Who goes on a nighttime ice run with the family dog? In your station wagon, did you need to take the dog with you? Was the dog with him? I didn't. The like, dog was with really? him. Really, I did. Yeah. I missed that. The okay. dog was with Incognito, him. Incognito, man, you gotta keep a low profile, make it seem normal as hell. Yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> station wagon dog. in two thousand six. Come on, Doug. Come on, come dude. on. Highest yeah. rated safety station, vehicle, but at TSA. <laughs> he he, he couldn't have driven a sedan. If he was gonna have a station wagon, like making an Audi or something, but not a fucking I had Volvo a Ford station, white station wagon. Right, well, okay, this is Tom Cruise. This is, this is Ethan Cruise. Hunt, man. This is yeah. Ethan fucking this is Hunt. Ethan Hunt. He needs an Audi station trying wagon. Trying to be normal. Also, you ain't got enough ice. <laughs> but uh, anyway, send someone out for that shit. Yeah, yeah, seriously, send your brother-in-law, but he fucks everything up. That's yeah. right. Um, so 
when he uh, has the Kodak camera or whatever, he just holds it in his hand when it says it's going to self-destruct. And I'm like, what if it blew up like his Oakley's in the last movie? <laughs> I the same thing too. Right. You can't just hold it in your hand. Like, what if it blows up? So I was just like, that was kind of stupid. I like when, that it wasn't some ridiculous though, like a fucking... Like number two. Like, yeah, yeah they, they, they toned down the explosives. Yeah. Now. I'll they give you that. They toned everything down a lot. Yeah, yeah. they did. Like last movie got kind of like James Bond ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, and this movie, I think the Bourne movie is coming out really... Made yeah. them kind of ground things, like you said, Dominic. How do you confirm somebody's vascular ID from a camera when they're looking for Ferris in that warehouse? They're like, oh, we found her and we confirmed her vascular ID. What does that even mean? <laughs> like, you can detect her blood. That, you can yeah. detect her blood with a camera. That doesn't make any sense. I didn't, I didn't catch that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I have a lot of trash, guys. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. That's okay. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, my treasure, Ving Rames, of course. I'm glad he's back. You know, Luther's one of my favorite people in this franchise. But like Ethan, you really didn't invite Ving Rames to your engagement party after all y'all been through. Yeah. He can't. He can't do that. Why not? How are you gonna explain how he knows him? Just lie and say you guys work at the Department of Transit. He's trying to keep it all separate. Man. I think yeah, exactly. I think yeah. he has to keep it all separate. Yeah. Okay. I think that's why. His Fair enough. Life and his work yeah, life he home. wants to keep Julia far away from it. Yeah. Which we see in Ghost Protocol is yeah. impossible. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Imagine yeah. someone's yeah. falling and being rings. <laughs> I'm not gonna get credit for that, dude. What the that's fuck? Yeah, that's true. Come on, Kerwin. Keep okay. it together. Fair man. enough. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Awarded one shoot buck. Yeah. Next. What's what's your next trash, Kerwin? I'm gonna knock it down. Yeah. All right. So, so <laughs> if they're going to gun everybody down with those turrets and cause such a fucking commotion, right? At the uh, warehouse, why not just send a whole hit squad in there? Like if you're going to be making all this fucking noise, why not just send in 20 guys, body armor and just fucking go all out? He's Ethan Hunt. It's the IMF. They have to be mm-hmm. uh, that was not covert at all. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was not covert. Like they set up the turrets and everything. You could have just showed up with like twenty guys and, and Ethan Hunt doesn't need twenty guys. It's, 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 uh. it's got to be a small task force. Well, so did, if did, they fail, they can disavow. All, okay. Well, like, did uh, did Ferris live? It wasn't his fault. Did she live though? It wasn't his fault. That was the mission. Even if they sent twenty yeah. guys in, no, you don't know that it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. My trash. Anyway. Uh, it's not a good trash. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I know. All right. <laughs> All right. Can we just have a spy movie? And I talked about this in uh, like The Rock and like other movies like Face Off or whatever. Can we just have like a movie where the significant other is aware of what their significant other is Dude. doing. Yeah. Like every, like you talked about this, Jason, where Michelle Monaghan is just like, where are we? What do we do? This and that. Answer my questions. And all I could think about is that Chris Rock stand up where he's just like, I only got one foot in the door. And already you're talking about like, he's like, God damn it. Can I just have my big piece of chicken? That's all I could think about when, when she's just yelling these questions. And I'm just like, what movie can the female just know what her husband does and be cool with that shit? It's just so overdone. So fucking overdone. What do you uh, think that is? Because of liabilities issues? And- I don't know. Well, it yeah, makes, it maybe be. it's just drama. Who yeah. knows? Maybe it makes the story more interesting. I just, I just think it's overdone. Um, also, uh, wouldn't the IMF know about Ethan's engagement? You know, whether he decided to tell them or not, they're a high-tech, clandestine, super undercover agency. Wouldn't they know, and wouldn't Ethan want them to know so they could put protective detail on him during his, like, quote-unquote retirement? When the president's no longer the president, they got Secret Service for life, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I say, like, retirement and, like, quotes because 
even though he's not a spy anymore, he's still allowed to take part in meetings and go to the headquarters yeah. and go on missions. So is he really on retirement at all during this movie? Did he really leave at all if he's just able to walk in the door and meet Lawrence Fishburne and go on a, go on a meeting and get and Musgrave hits him up and stuff like that? And so if that's the case, why not just put your fiance on file in case anything happens to you if you're still going on missions. Because you obviously don't work at the Department of Transit. Well, I think they, they address that in Ghost Protocol. Yeah. Well, this yeah. ain't Ghost Protocol, though. Like, uh, yeah, this saying. is before Ghost Protocol. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's like, why not put her on file yeah. so that she's protected? Oh, so, because she, fiancés aren't considered significant others, just so. That's kind of it's, it's a legal uh, thing. Uh, I guess so. Fiancés aren't covered under insurance, so. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I just, my trash with that is like, I think it's really selfish of Ethan to think that he alone could protect an unprotected civilian from all the bullshit that he's yeah. dealing with, yeah. especially going on missions. Yeah. Either go on the missions and put her on file or cut yourself off from the IMF entirely. That's like hella selfish. And then, you know, Luther literally says everything that I just said. Like, what the fuck is your problem? You're probably ruining her life by keeping the secret from yeah. her. Yeah, so shout out to Luther, by the way. He's uh, the ultimate he's treasure a, with this movie. One. Yeah, he's a real <laughs> one. Um, trash, having sex in a medical supply room. Trash. Yeah. It's gross. It probably happens all the time now that I look at it. <laughs> Ugh, those needles, man. Um, okay, so when Davian's bodyguard is coming to the restroom, right, after he, like, uh, subdues him or whatever, uh-huh. after he takes his place, he just happens to have red wine spray. He just happens to have red wine spray. You didn't like that? Well, that was the part I of thought the it was like, there was me- they were like, she yeah, was meant to spill wine She was wine gonna spill wine on No, him. but it's just like, they came in with red wine spray. I just I just think it's kind of silly. I'm just kind of, it's very convenient. It is, it is. It's, very, it's, it's very convenient. It's very convenient, yeah. circumstantial, like they would, he would have a, I can't just have real wine, not a spray. Because like, what if, what if, I thought it's her wine. It was, but she, it was yeah. wine she had found there. She's like, hey, create, create the diversion kind of thing. No, and I think she I, had every ambition of, of spilling that on him, and that's why I, I, I thought it was it was an impromptu like spilling the wine, but then no, him having the I think it was all part of the plan. Yeah, yeah. nah, I don't get know. him to go yeah. to the restroom. Now it's too, no, I get it, I get yeah. it. You want him to go to the restroom, but the fact that you just happen to have red wine spray. What if what if things go wrong and you use white why wine? Did he even, why did he have to be? Why did it even have to be a spray? Why couldn't it have just been like you know just pour it on? Yeah, you. just a pour, a little vial of wine, and that that have been fine too. Like you have those little shot glass wine bottles. I guess I guess this is what I'm saying. I just I just feel like that was a little too convenient. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's awful. I'm <laughs> yeah. not saying it's part bad. of the plan. I'm just saying it's I'm just saying it's a little convenient. I think it's part of the plan too. Yeah. I'm gonna say Mars here. Yeah. Um going back to uh you know when yeah Owen Davian is trying to figure out Ethan's name and he's just like what's your name? What's your name? And uh he's hanging him out the airplane. I'm like Luther shut the fuck up. <laughs> Stop saying yeah. Ethan's name. Yeah. Like he's he probably says it 18 times. That and yeah, and that's Luther's low point, I think. I'm it's like, like they dude, don't have he, code names, like yeah. Why? Why would you use your real name on a mission? That's yeah. another thing. Use fake names. Use call signs. Call yourself Maverick. Luther could be Sundown. I don't know. <laughs> Do something about that. Say anything but his name. Yes. Like, come on, Luther. You're, he's so much better than that, and he just lets it slip numerous times. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. Use don't call, tell use Karen about the printer. <laughs> <laughs> Like you said, Bling, we're like three for three on rogue agents. Uh, we're also three for three on Ethan Hunt having to go rogue and be a right about something. It's just like yeah. after two movies, just you think trust you would, the guy. Trust, trust yeah. him. If he says something's wrong, just trust his ass. Yeah. Like he, he found out about the other guys last time. After the movie's over, 
we're not gonna remove the charge from his head. We're not gonna show that just in case. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Well, well, I thought didn't he, the shock. Yeah, yeah, no, no, the shock's it's no longer. It's like, not active. Yeah, but active, it's still, but it's still in there. Yeah. It could still blow up, even though yeah. like yeah. it's no longer like an active. Yeah. Um, or at least cause lead, lead contamination or poisoning. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a foreign object. I would have just liked to see them take it out. Yeah. That's so in credit scene, like yeah. <laughs> surgery on yeah. his brain. Like yeah, and then uh, one of my last ones is that um, you know the movie starts off because uh, Ferris is caught and killed. At some point, it would have been nice for um, Ethan and his wife to visit and pay respects. Uh, letting her know that they avenged her at the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, it would have been like, hey, you know, like, this is what I do for a living. This is why you were in China. Like, I had to, you know, yeah. I had to do right by my apprentice who I trained, you know? That would have been something cool like that. Get into my treasure, though, because I do like this movie despite all the bullshit I've been throwing you guys away. My apologies. Uh, that opening interrogation scene, like you guys all said, it's great. The acting is phenomenal. <laughs> when Ferris asks Ethan how much ammo he has left, he runs out to kill the guy with one bullet, and then he's like, enough. <laughs> so I thought that was... It was cheesy, but it was cool. One line is this. Yeah. yeah the, I think the second one liner he did was, I was like, God, this is awful. Yeah. Like the first one, I was like, okay. It's like James Bond levels. Yeah. 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 This, okay. This movie is really like a James Bond movie when you really think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When Ethan is saying um, that it's unacceptable to evaluate Ferris after she was caught and killed, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character is just like, it's unacceptable that chocolate makes you fat, but I've been eating my share and guess what? And he like points at himself. <laughs> I was laughing. That was pretty hilarious. When they're screaming at everybody in traffic, you know, when they park the truck in the middle of the traffic and they're like yelling at each other so you could climb the wall. All I could think about was that Family Guy episode when he's like, boopity boppity, boopity (laughs) beep, boopity. That's all I could think about. Like this movie is really well edited. Like I'll definitely give it that. I love the entire Vatican break-in sequence. Like I love how they're just moving through, you know, Luther's drilling underwater. They got to blow the hole, all this other stuff. So I appreciate the entire Vatican uh, break-in sequence and how they captured Davian. I thought that was really well done and really well edited. One moment that I do like that was really well edited is when Ethan tells Luther he's already married because, you know, they got like a shotgun wedding or whatever at the hospital. And I like that it cuts to audio of the crowd applauding right when he says it. Yeah. So I thought that was that was a really nice uh, sound edit before the actual visual cut. Mm-hmm. I like the mask scene. Yeah. I, I, yeah and I, I especially I especially appreciate the the voice modulator because it's like uh, if you download a font, it says uh, the quick fox jumped over the lazy dog, and I, and you have to make him say all that gibberish so they can get all the different kind right. of syllables that he would speak. So I, I appreciated that they actually showed how that worked. And they they showed us the behind the scenes of how the face masks are made and where they get the voices from. I like Philip Seymour Hoffman as uh, David in this movie. He doesn't have any time for Ethan's bullshit and he just gets shit done. I, I love it. He's not really a physically imposing guy, there you go, but yeah. I just I just love that he's like no nonsense and he's way better than whatever the fuck Doug Ray Scott was last movie. Like way better. My only issue was hit with him is that like at the end they just reveal that he's a nobody. He's just another arms dealer. Musgrave kind of takes away all. All the mystery and the impact of him by saying he's just a weed and basically a pawn and then mm. you know the way he dies like uh, five minutes later a car just hits him and he dies yeah. which is a cool fight it's a cool way to go but I just kind of feel like I would have liked to have more substance to the character yeah. he's well acted and you've got a great actor doing it and then um, Owen Davian he, he really has no plan he just is who he is he's just an arms dealer you know the real villain of this movie is Musgrave, but he only becomes that villain at the last minute. You know, when you really think about it, though, 
is there really a true villain in this movie? Because this whole plot is a revenge story, yeah. basically. Like you killed, you killed my apprentice. I'm gonna come after you. But you know, Musgrave is literally just doing his job. He's facilitating these deals for Davian so he can catch the real criminals, the guys that'll actually use things like the rabbit's foot. He uses uh, Davian as a pawn to catch the real bad guys. He's not worried about arms dealers. He's worried about arms users. So is Musgrave really even a villain in this movie? That's yeah, a you good could, point. You, you could yeah. argue because he has altruistic like motives. He wants to do like the right thing as far as capturing the bigger threats and then send him in his, what their, his country does best, you know, cleans up and gives him a reason to have a presence in, you know, these, these third world countries or whatever that's has these issues with, you know, terrorists or whatnot. So he, he has, he has an altruistic like motive to, to helping these arms dealers that, Hey, it gives us a reason to be here and have a presence. And also like, I don't really hate the guy because despite, you know, working the way he does, he approached Ethan and said, Hey, the girl you train got caught. I want to give you an opportunity to save her. Like he's not a total dick and it's just like, fuck it, she's gone. Like, you know, we always talk about, um, oh, the secretary will disavow you, disavow you if you get caught. Mm-hmm. F- somebody finally gets caught in one of these movies and they don't disavow her. Yeah. Like he actually goes out of his way to say, hey, Ethan, I know this girl's really important to you. I want to give you an opportunity to save her. I want to bring you back, you know, in an undercover mission that Lawrence Fishburne is not going to know about. So when you really think about it, there's no real like villain in this movie. Like there, like there's no like true villain in this movie. There's no plot for this for a villain. I guess. So where's Musgrave's heart at then? Like, where do you think he's really? I think he's just doing his job. Yeah. He's just doing his job, and because he's uh, Ethan's friend, he said. Hey, your apprentice is gone, and he even helps him escape uh, the IMF. Remember? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's when they they have the lip reading again that they yeah, because like yeah. he helped you, he helped you try to save Ferris, yeah. and he broke you out to help you save your wife after and, she got. And he caught. does say that that's not his wife when they go through that one scene that yeah. we see at the back end of it. And says, "Do they know about me?" Almost like, "Look at." He's just good. trying to cover his ass. Your That's wife is so fine. Uh-huh. Is there? Am I good? Am I good? I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. yeah so I, I just feel like hmm. this movie has no real villain. Okay, there is a villain. Oh, you know, Owen Davian. Owen Davian is. Yeah. Owen Davian is a villain, but I think this plot doesn't have to do with any of the uh, any of a villain's right. uh, intentions or ambitions. If that you makes sense. You don't think sense. Musgrave was the one telling him to plant the bombs in their heads? No, he doesn't. He doesn't tell these guys what to do. He he told him where Owen Davian was. Remember, mm-hmm. he's like he's gonna be here, and that's how you can find your wife. He got him out of there to find his wife. It's it's all Owen Davian's operation. That scientist guy mm-hmm. that just decides to put bombs in people's heads. Like that's how they operate. He has no control over that. Like he didn't know that uh, Ferris was gonna have a bomb put in her head when he sent Tom Cruise to rescue her. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, why send him at all? It wasn't a trap. So there's no there's no malintent there. He actually reached out to him and said, "Hey, like go save go save your girl." He's not really a bad guy in this movie. But I never thought about that too with Owen Davian. Like I never thought like because at the very end you're right. He says like he he really discounts him and say, "Hey, I mean you get rid of him, five more will pop up tomorrow." And it's just like yeah. we just spent this whole movie like really hating this guy, and yeah. it's just like he just really just undercuts him and just says like, "Oh, I mean, well, yeah, you got rid of this guy, but it's like." He's a dime a dozen. Like, there's going to be, you know, yeah. a few more tomorrow. It doesn't matter. I never really thought about it that way, but they really just, like, take away all that, that intimidating factor about him. And it's like, not, I mean, but that's a common thing with these movies. Like, nothing really carries on, at least in these first three. Like, nothing really carries on. It's just like, there's not a common enemy. Mm-hmm. It's just this one and done kind of deal. And it's just like, this one, I think, even more just undercuts him. 
that's my main issue. It's just kind of like, like you said, Jason, it just undercuts the whole villain thing. And then, um, you know, by the end of the movie, you're just told that the villain never fucking matters, which is stupid. We talk about the rabbit's foot, right? We don't know what it is. We never find out what it does. Even Ethan is just like, hey, what is the rabbit's foot? And Lawrence Fishburne is just like, oh, if you stick around, I'll tell you. And then the movie just kind of ends. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you've made this movie all about the rabbit's foot. But the actual plot of this movie is getting revenge for Carrie Russell. So um, there's a TED Talk that you can watch. I haven't watched it. But uh, J.J. Abrams talks about his uh, mystery box technique and storytelling where you put an item or a concept in front of somebody to get them hooked but what it actually is does not matter because all that matters is that they're hooked so this rabbit's foot that they're after is totally irrelevant to the fucking plot which i'm pissed off about because i feel like he did that and lost me on the he did it in star wars i fucking hate it yeah like think about it everything in force awakens is mystery box like Ray, where she comes from, yeah. touching the lightsaber, Snoke, all this other shit. Knights of Ren. Knights of Ren. It's mm-hmm. just like things to get you hooked, and it's like total bullshit. And he pulls off the bullshit in this movie too. It's just like, oh, rabbit's foot. Well, I'm never gonna tell you what it does or what it is. Yeah, but you, you even tease it like, okay, I'll tell you if you stick around. I'll tell you. And then even that is a mystery box. It's just like, oh, we have to see the next one now to know what it is. And I'm just kind of like, stop. Did it. he do Ghost Protocol? No. He was, I think he was a producer, but that's, he did not direct it. I mean, yeah. that's genius. Do you like how it ended, too? No. They just walk out, him walk and his wife. Celebration. Fuck no. I had to, like, I had to I go liked back. I liked it. I liked it. I, like, turned away for a second, and, like, I'm, walk, I'm watching him walk out. I, like, took a leak or something. I came back in. And I was like, no, no, no. There's something at the end. There's not. There's yeah. just him walking out. Yeah. I was and really I, bummed. But I think you get closure, in a sense, for him yeah. as far as, I mean, what's it about? He gets sucked into this lifestyle again because he feels like he has to, right? And then what is compromised is what he holds value, like his whole, then he's closed it to where it's like, they're gonna be riding off into the sunset happily ever after. Now that does not show in the next films down the road, but I still feel like it's a great ending because it starts off of him being happy and it being taken away to where he then gets it back and it shows them, ha- I don't know, I, I don't mind it. I think it closes a lot of doors. I think that was also the intent, I think at the time, like trilogy films was, I think this was intended to be the last of it. I don't think they were they were initially going to plan it. That is true. Beyond. And then they do, they don't call it Mission Impossible number anymore. It's oh, yeah. now Ghost Protocol. Oh, so I, yeah, I think, this, that, yeah. I think the original intent was not to actually go beyond this one. Yeah. I don't think they, even look at most films now, it usually ends at a trilogy and that's it. I mean, yeah. with exception of like the Rocky series or whatever. But yeah. I mean, I think in for that time, like three was done. Jurassic Park three was supposed to be the end of it. Mission Impossible 3 was supposed to be the end of it, and then they decide, no, we can make more money and keep Terminator making 3. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> to touch but, on your, you said there's no villain. I was just thinking about that right now. As far as like a, it, it's kind of like a, a tragedy almost. Like he's just a casualty of his own, like, I guess, plans or trying to operate outside of the IMF. And he is kind of like, he's a fallen hero almost, so to speak, like an anti-hero. He's just responsible. He's just yeah. irresponsible. I don't yeah. Think, yeah. I don't think it's any of that. Like I was telling Jason uh, off mic, like this movie does not happen if Musgrave never contacts Ethan to go rescue Carrie Russell. Like none of this movie happens. The IMF just goes on about their day. Carrie Russell gets disavowed and Tom Cruise gets married to uh, Michelle Monaghan. Yeah, he's like a casualty of his own um, plot. I don't know how to word it right now, but 
Yeah, yeah like yeah. his own like his own uh, interpersonal relationship with yeah. this person has put, has caused this plot to happen because even uh, him trying to bend the rules, I guess. Not not even that. It's just like make a decision. Make a decision. Are you in or out? You can't yeah. have your cake and eat it too. And that's what this movie is really all about. Mm-hmm, like yeah. you can't have your cake and eat it too. But yeah. ironically, I'm in my treasure portion. But uh, yeah. I'm gonna wrap this up real quick. I do like the one shot where uh, Julia shocks Ethan and he bites through the tongue depressor. Yeah. That is fucking intense. That yeah. is and like the way he just knocks out. That's pretty much it. That's my <laughs> trash and treasure with this movie. So let's move on to our ticket prices. Jason, why don't you tell us how much you would pay to watch Mission Impossible three? I think I'm just gonna go fifteen. I like the first one. Again, I talked about it like when we did we reviewed the first one. The nostalgia part was different. I didn't care much for the second one. I mean, I, I liked it, but I think I liked the different approach to this one. I liked how it started. I feel like the whole time I'm super engaged. I was into it from the beginning. Um, the twists throughout the movie, the cast. I don't know, like coming off the second one, I, I was a little unsure about this, but again, I, like I said, I saw it in theaters and I, I really do enjoy this every time I watch it. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be a solid 15 on this one. Dominic, how much would you pay to watch Mission Impossible 3? I'm going to go 15 as well. I definitely enjoyed this one comparatively speaking to like the last two. And like a lot of the stuff was outlandish and not plausible in my opinion, but this one seemed a lot more grounded and like a little bit more realistic and logical in some of the the way that they executed the stuff. And then it just kept me hooked like right when I like pressed play, like I was hooked and I watched the whole thing all the way through. So 15. All right. Mugga, how much would you pay? There is a Mission Impossible that I will probably give a 20. It's not this one, but it's so close. I have to give it a high 15 because I really enjoy it, but um, I'm going to go 15 as well. I was so close to giving it a 20, though, but I really even can't pinpoint. I just know what, out of the franchise, one of them I'm going to give a 22, and I'm like, this is not as good as that, so I'm going to go 15 on this as well. Okay, cool. Uh, Bling, how much would you pay? I think I'm just gonna say I'm gonna give this twenty bucks. So <laughs> you and, gave and, the first one what a five, and I stick by. I actually, <laughs> I, 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 and I stick by that. And I when looking back, I stick uh, by it. So here's the thing about this: I think this is an important film in the franchise for me because this brought me back into enjoying. It starts of, off the franchise. Yeah, it, it, it sense, starts so. almost creating this interconnected universe where every movie matters. And it's important that you see the previous film. So ever since this film has come out, I've made it like an obligation to go see Mission Impossible in theaters. So I'll go by myself to go watch Mission Impossible because of this film. Every year when I, I had the collection, of course, so I rewatched the Mission Impossible films. However, I typically skip the first two. I always start with this one and I'll go through and watch every single one after it. So I think this is an important film in the franchise because it kind of brings the whole Mission Impossible franchise relevant again. And, you know, they introduce staple characters, they bring back, you know, Luther, they introduce Benji, and then every film since then, they keep bringing back characters and yeah, making it relevant for the for the sequel. So I think this is an important film, $20. All right, cool. I gotta agree with you, Bling. I think um, we were talking about this, you know, before we recorded off mic, but yeah. we were talking about our favorite Fast and the Furious movies. And um, a lot of people feel like part five is where they found their identity. Mm -hmm. And I think Mission Impossible 3 is where this franchise finds its identity. Mm -hmm. It finds its own brand of humor. It finds its own style of action. um, It finds its own tone. It figures out which characters it wants to keep and what types of stories that it wants to tell. And I feel like, like you're saying, it is an important movie in this franchise and it definitely sets the tone for every movie that comes after it. You know, I got a lot of problems with this movie 
well, okay, I really don't have a lot of problems with this movie. I'm really like stretching for my trash here. Um, my biggest issue though is that I feel like the villain just doesn't fucking matter in this movie. Like you're like by the end of the movie, you're told that everything that happens doesn't matter, which is kind of a letdown. But I think as much of a problem I have with J.J. Abrams' approach to his mystery box shit, like I'm intrigued all the way through the movie. He just doesn't let you down to the very end, unfortunately, which is which is fucking lame. But um, as much as I want to give this movie a 10, I'm, I'm going to give it a low 15. I'm going to give it a low 15 because I think that ending really does undercut a lot of the buildup that's been happening. And I think it's complete and utter bullshit that they would do that to the story at the end. Okay, so end of number one, he puts the tape in and it kind of sets it up for the next one. Yeah. If they would have done something like that with this movie, do you think it would have been more of a solid 15? No, I think I think my issue is just that the villain's just inconsequential. Like, but minus the villain, like, well, I, I guess, no, 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 no. Other other than that, no, like, no, no, the no, movie's I, great. Yeah. So I guess I guess my my main issue is just with the ending itself, like the last scene of them walking out and face to black, and then that's in the, the movie. Oh, I don't care about that. That's I like. So it's just a villain with you. Yeah, yeah. Like if if this is supposed to be the end of a trilogy, like Bling is saying, typically movies at that time operated in a uh, three three uh, three movie structure. You know what I'm saying? Like a three part structure. I'm perfectly fine with this being his like riding off into the sunset, okay. leaving the agency moment. I don't have a problem with that at all. My problem is just that. They, they don't have a clear focus on this villain. The villain doesn't really even want anything. Like, he's just doing his thing. Musgrave is painted as the villain when he's really just doing his job. Like, this movie... This movie just can't figure out like what what is it what is it we're fighting against like yeah. it's if it's just a revenge story just let it be a revenge story just let it be that okay. or is it is it their job to take out guys like this I mean I, I don't no it, I well, still feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman is a great no he's villain. great yeah. I'm not saying he's yeah. I'm not saying he's I'm not saying so I would I would, he's I would bad. consider I think, him the villain I when you're talking about Musgrave I get that I think that oh this guy's evil and he needs to be taken down and it's IMF's job. To take him down. No, no, that and that's that's where I have the problem because we we understand that as the audience. The yeah. problem is that we're told at the very end of the film that nothing we've experienced matters, yeah. and that's that's the problem. We're told the rabbit's foot doesn't matter, yeah. and we're told that uh, Owen Davian doesn't matter. And I'm just like, I spent the whole movie afraid of this guy, and yeah. now you're just gonna tell me he doesn't matter, like. Yeah. I, I, I would have preferred it. Yeah. I, I would have preferred if Musgrave was like working with him or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and and the whole angle of Musgrave being a—I mean, you you didn't even really need it in the film. If you if you omitted that, I think you would have more appreciation. I think to your point, Kerwin, where you like, hey, his whole speech kind of undermines Philip Seymour Hoffman, though Davian as as a uh, as a villain. So that's why I think that's yeah, the whole speech of him and him being another rogue agent again for the third time. Yeah, he starts off as Darth Vader and by the end of the movie he's like Captain Phasma. Like <laughs> he just doesn't fucking matter, which yeah. sucks. Like because he's a great he's a greatly portrayed character. Mm -hmm. He's oh, written he's Phasma. written well during the movie, mm -hmm. but then like you said Jay, like Musgrave's speech towards the end just like destroys all of that and you're just then like, it feels like a game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. Cuz you're just you're just knocking down the next one as they keep coming up as opposed to having this like but I feel like this so one's still They didn't end it, it still sets saying. up the other ones. No, no, yeah. and that's, that's fine. It's it just sets yeah. up, like, it's just like a, a scope on this time yeah. period where it's like, okay, this point in time, this is what happened. He Because the wife shows up in the next movies. Um, no, no, I, I all get, I, yeah. I get all that, and I 100% and I, I get all that, and that's a treasure for me. I'm just saying that this is my 
huge major issue with this movie is that at the end we're told everything we just went through doesn't matter. Yeah. That being said, however, I, I'm willing to give this movie a 15 because it is really, really enjoyable. It's yeah. well choreographed, well edited, well shot, keeps you on your toes. It's fun. It's funny. It's fast. It's frantic. Mm -hmm. Everything you want in a spy movie. Also, I'm just biased towards spy movies, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. secret agent shit. I gave fucking Face Off $15, so how could I not give this one 15 You know what I'm saying? You got it. So I'm going 15 on Mission Impossible 3. All right. There you go. So how much are we paying, Mugs? $16. Damn. That's more than rating. Oblivion. Yeah. But one thing we do when we do a Tom Cruise movie is we tell you when he starts running, right? Oh, yeah. Here we so, go. This is the best. I've been looking forward to this. Tom Cruise runs for the first time in this movie at uh, 13 minutes and one second. That's when he starts running in this movie. And I know, Jason, you got some more uh, research on him running, right? Yeah, so we talk, we talk a lot about Tom Cruise running. So what I looked up was what movies does Tom Cruise run the most in? I mean, we obviously all saw this movie pretty recently. Yeah. Where do you think this ranks? Okay, Kerwin, don't this look is, at my screen. Yeah, I can Kerwin, see your screen, so I'm not going to say anything. Talk about this for a second, then. He does that scene at the end. Yeah. And there's other things. So I would put this high. I'd say top three. I would say in the top five. I'd say top three. What, what other movies does he run more in? Mission Impossible, Follow Ghost right. Protocol. He's running from the sandstorm. There is that. He outruns the sandstorm. Think about I'm this. I'm going to put this as number four. Like, I yeah. think there's a lot of running scenes Fallout in this one. And, and I also see, like, he has, he has a really good strike. I have not seen Fallout. Oh, when he's running on the roof? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It has to be. It is a long, so a I long got, sequence. I got top ten movies. Okay. So do it. I go four. Okay. This movie's number one. What? Really? Damn. Wow, okay. okay. So number ten, Vanilla Sky. Yeah, he does run in that. He runs 832 feet. <laughs> Why is that so freaking funny? <laughs> it's like you have the feet. <laughs> and down dirty you with the duration stuff. too. Or? All right, so Rogue Nation, uh, number nine, uh, one thousand seven feet. The Mummy, your favorite mugs, uh, number eight, a thousand twenty-two feet. Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, is number seven at a thousand fifty-one feet. Collateral's got to be up there. Let me get through this, mugs. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow is a thousand sixty-five feet. Okay, that sounds it's number right. six. Yeah, yeah, the firm. A lot of seats. Yeah. The firm. Is he in runs this. in the firm. Yeah, he does. Oh my yeah. god, he runs a lot in the firm. Uh, watch that again. Number five, uh, twelve hundred forty-one feet. Minority report. report. And number four, uh, fifteen hundred sixty-two feet. Number three, War of the Worlds, uh, one thousand seven hundred fifty-two feet. Number two, Ghost Protocol, three thousand sixty-six feet. And then number one, Mission Impossible 3, 3,212 feet. Collateral's not up there? No. Nope. I, thought, I thought I saw him running a lot in running, LA. I don't think he's running a lot. After Jamie Foxx and all that? No. Mm. no. Nah, damn, that's crazy. Because I was watching this, and I'm like... He runs he's, a lot. He's running an awful lot. And then you start watching the behind the scenes, and it's like, oh, yeah, this camera's moving at 16 or 17 miles per hour. He's doing this, you know, three and a half football field yard dash. And I'm just like, yeah, he's running out of the, the escaping from the island. What's he IMF. saying? Dunkai, yeah. Dunkai, what is he saying? It's like, like excuse it's, me. Yeah, get whatever. out of the way. Yeah. Out of the way. Yeah. yeah. But I was like, he's running a lot. So I looked it up, and it's like number one. And I'm like, holy yeah, fuck, of course it is. Yeah, he's running the bridge scene, running from IMF. Running in Beijing, running when he gang gang to Julia. I think that's what he's running from the. Oh yeah, the the hospital, like everything. Yeah, he's yeah. running so much in this. Yeah. That list might be a little 
biased though. Why? In Days of Thunder, they cut him off running. We don't know how far he ran at the very, very end. Well, that's on. They were the, running yeah. towards Victory Lane, right? Yeah. Okay. So you never know. Oh, I'm just saying. But the same thing, Edge of, of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow, he's doing a lot of running yeah. when he's repeating the days, but it doesn't count, I guess. Or he didn't so. run over 800 feet in Days of Thunder. There's no way. I thought he ran a lot. No, he didn't. I'm gonna look at that movie again. Yeah, go ahead. Dude, Edge of Tomorrow, you live this like same day, like I think nine times. On your feet, <laughs> maggot. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Tom Cruise is great at running, but since he's in this film, we gotta find somebody else who's great at running. Uh, so because Tom Cruise is in this movie, we gotta find an actor to replace him. So if any other actor could be in this movie, any era, this whatever. Came out in 2005, right? 2006. 2006. Yeah, okay. so if you could pick any actor, doesn't matter when, what time period, whatever. Who would you have play Ethan Hunt in this movie? Ethan Hawke. I can see that. God, no. Ethan Hawke? No? No, no, no. I was thinking more of like a, just because it's a little darker, maybe like, but he's older. But I mean, it's 2006, so maybe like a Kurt Russell or even, I'm thinking of like a, like a Repo Man Jude Law. Mm. There you go. Jude Law, yeah, that's pretty good. Okay. I think maybe like a Repo Man Jude Law. Yeah. I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go. Tay Diggs. I'm gonna go Tay Diggs Tay in there. Diggs. Why not? Tay. He was in. He was in Equilibrium. Yeah, he was really good in Equilibrium. Yeah, yeah. like I think. I think he was trying to make his action movie debut with Equilibrium, and I think maybe around this yeah, time, he had the worst death scene in that film. Yeah, bro. he, he might have been. He might have been shopping around for like a uh, action movie. So I'm gonna go with Tay Diggs. I'm gonna go with Tay Diggs. <laughs> Tay Diggs. I don't care. Okay, okay, Tay Diggs. That works. Are you waiting on me? Yeah. I I don't know. I have no idea. I'm, Trying to go through this. All right, I don't he, know. If, if in he, 2006, what I would. Well, it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be from that time. Like a Ryan Reynolds or something could even even do this yeah, one. I don't I'm know. trying to think. Ryan Wilder had con, gone out. I, I I would go Daniel Craig. Okay. I yeah, think he would, yeah, yeah, he would do good. Yeah, he would do good. But I feel like you're just replacing you see, a Bond character with someone else. You yeah. see him in that opening scene though. Ryan? I can see a Ryan Ryan Reynolds doing that. I can't even see a Jude Law doing that, but I can't see Daniel. I don't know why, I, I, but I can't I, see Daniel Craig. Well, because he's not getting his balls whacked during the scene. That yeah. is true. Yeah. yeah, maybe if he had that. Ryan Gosling. Yeah, because yeah, he oh, did yeah. he Blade I Runner. He did maybe. it. Yeah. I was gonna say like Mark Wahlberg. I think he could pull it off. I think he was did, he was also around that time he was getting that big big push. He okay. did. Uh, what did he do? He did obviously Departed in 2006. He did. Uh, what was that video game adaptation he did? He did a. Uh, Transformers? No, it's the one. It's a painting game. Yeah, Ma- Ma- Max Payne. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so if you're talking about Transformers, could Shia LaBeouf be this guy? No, not in this movie. No, I would, I would, I would believe it. Yeah. That guy can act, dude. Oh, he can. Yeah, he can act. Definitely I don't know about action though. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, I would put um, put Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, he could be he could be Ethan Hunt in this movie, or even Idris Elba. Yeah, Idris Elba. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's any spy movie you could put Idris Elba in. I think, dude, he just got the accent, dude. Like it's just yeah. the voice is just Michael like, B. Jordan. <laughs> Michael B. Jordan. No, 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 Michael B. Jordan. No, not in this film. What? What's up? What's up with the hate, man? No, he just not. He's not uh, what? He's say not, it. Say it. Say it into the mic. He, he is doesn't have I, him being a covert agent. I don't. I don't forget that vibe from him. I don't know. I just I don't feel. I don't feel it. You know. I feel he's too jokey and he's kind of like not too. Are you going with the because he's black and can't be covert? <laughs> no. <laughs> he stands out. He can't be in Italy. Like I just mentioned in the Vatican. Like, like yeah, like, this guy. Hey, hey, you, you, <laughs> your kind. You cannot be here. You cannot be in the Vatican. Like it's fucked up, bro. 
I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just he playing with you. Bling. I'm just playing with you. <laughs> no. But I think, uh, I think that's it, right, guys? We're good. We're good. So uh, I guess we'll all uh, meet up again when we do Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So uh, or Mission Impossible Four: Carrying the Mugga. That's is that true. Right? Yeah, no, it is. It's not called Four. It's, it's, it's Ghost Protocol. It's the fourth one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, in the words of Tom Cruise, Hail Zeno. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> that stays in. That stays in. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of $20 Ticket. Follow us on Instagram at $20 Ticket and leave your ticket price about the movies we've reviewed. If you have any comments or suggestions, send them to $20Ticket at gmail.com. That's 2-0, the numbers, $20Ticket at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts and thank you for listening. Welcome to $20 Ticket where we tell you how much we would pay. I gotta start that over. Uh, in a, tw- ugh, tw- I was gonna say 2002, kind of, kind of dumbass way to say 2002. Is that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in tw- in 2002. <laughs> Sorry, 2002. 2002. In 2002, Tom Cruise was lobbying to be a Scientologist. <laughs> Where right. was that in back in two? He was over <laughs> there, right at the pub, having a little beer, eh? <laughs> Gods of war. May your hammer be mighty. <laughs> Saying what? 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 I don't know, you're just saying it weird. Where do you get off? <laughs> Shit, bitch, cock balls. He'd also go on to terminate the exclusive film, uh, the exclusive film, yeah, film. Film, got it on film. All right, Travis Scott, nobody? All right. Nope. Uh, he'd go on to, <laughs> uh, 20, or 2005, God damn it. <laughs> 2010s are fucking back in five. Back in 20, back in 2005, we used to call the years by the other kind of number. And do you know what kind of number that is? We did not say 2005. We said 2005. Do you hear what I'm saying to you, Jason? 2005. Here, here. God, I hope that stays in. <laughs> That's what she said. In a 2006 April, uh, in a April 2006, man, these dates are killing me, man. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, it's the only date I got on Valentine's weekend. Hey. Or didn't get. Sorry. Yeah, I know, right? Bears, Beats, Battlestar Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Michael? 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 Real funny. So, spell long dick. L-O-N. Dick. I'm here to tell you my trash about this movie. I can't do it anymore. Blues clues, blues clues. Put on your think, think, you think, think. How's it going? Because when you use your mind, you take a step at a time. You can do anything that you want to do. And he's just like, what? A clue? It's just like, Steve, maybe if you didn't face the fucking camera all episode and actually look behind you, you'd see the clues. It's like Paulie D just yelling. Clues can do, we can too. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. Mail! We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. I wonder who it's from. Totally carbon dated her, yeah. her age. We're old. We're old, guys. We're 90s kids.